I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. What do you like listening to? Um. <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> you pop crazed youngsters and welcome to the latest edition of Chart Music, the podcast that gets its hand right down the back of the settee on a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, Al Needham, and as always, I'm joined by two people. One of those people is Taylor Parks. Hey, Taylor, how are you, mate? Yeah, I'm all right. Really fucking ill and raring to go. And the other one is the welcome return of Mr. Neil Kulkarni. Hello, Neil. Hello, Al. Excellent. Well, how are we, chaps? All good? Um, I'm cock-a-hoop. It's half-term, which um, as a pre-teacher, I hated because it meant town was full of kids. But as a teacher, Mm. I fucking love it. Excellent. What do you do? Absolutely nothing. I'm blessed with a daughter who just wants to sit around watching telly. Do you ever watch old episodes of Top of the Pops with your uh, with your kids? Uh, most definitely. My daughter um, is obsessed with the 70s. I mean, she's 11 and she's mm. obsessed with the 70s and 80s. Uh, her biggest yeah. sort of... The music she's most fond of is by Michael Jackson and ABBA. Um, mm. She insists on 80s radio being on in the car all the time. Mm. Um, she's very much, um, in, you know, really engrossed in that age. And, and, and I think slightly wishes she was born back then, actually. Yeah. I bet you wish she was born back then as well, Neil, because you wouldn't be paying for her anymore, would you? Too bloody right. I've watched it with my uh, with my six-year-old niece, uh, and she loves everything. She's at that age mm-hmm. where she just dances to everything, even if it was, I don't know, uh, the exploited. Um, uh, but I've... <laughs> I have a 16-year-old uh, nephew, and I got into a huge argument with him uh, over Hazy Fantasia because he was <laughs> he was casting aspersions upon them, and I suddenly found myself shouting, "Well, at least they're not shaking their asses at the camera like what your lot do." And I just thought, "Where the <laughs> fuck did that come from?" I'd never gave a toss about Hazy Fantasia before, and I suddenly felt that the urge to defend them. The weird thing is, though, you do get to see little kids' reactions to this stuff. And one of the most sort of touching things is my daughter, when she sees something that I think she loves, she doesn't like watch it quietly. She starts laughing almost yeah. immediately. It's like those pop stars that you just you just can't quite believe them with your young mind. So whenever mm. when she first saw Adam Ant, for instance, her first reaction was just straight out laughter. I mean, she yeah. loves Adamant, but at that age, you kind of can't almost compute something. It's so intense. No. So laughter becomes the kind of first response. So it's, it's kind of revealing in a way. Just as well he's not scared of ridicule, really, isn't it? <laughs> Absolutely. Anyway, <laughs> this episode, Pop Craze Youngsters, takes us all the way back to November the 16th, 1978. Yes, the winter of discontent is about to begin, but we're still stuck in the summer of Travolta and Newton John. Chaps, as we all know, John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John spent 16 weeks combined at number one in this year. Um, I was 10, you were not 10. Um, did this, how, does it, how did this impact upon your life? Well, um, 
I remember Greece kind of being just this sort of cultural juggernaut in a way. Mm. Um, it was just omnipresent and everywhere. Um, I obviously wasn't old enough to go and see it. I think it was a double A, wasn't it, Greece? Because of the something um, like that. Yeah, yeah. There's there's some swearing in it and the stuff that Channel Four always censor out whenever they show it. The rhyming of shit and tit and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. But my sister went to see it, and and it was one of those films that it wasn't like people just popped in to see it. Um, they'd go and see it like five times in a week. Yeah. Um and, and and it was an absolute sort of cultural juggernaut that you you, you couldn't avoid. Um so uh, but because like cinema didn't really let me go and see Greece. I was happy with the records. I thought they were good songs. So mm. I mean I was only 6, you know, but I can understand how for a lot of people the success of Greece, the success simultaneously of things like Happy Days and and the whole kind of 50s um throwback of it would have antagonised people and would have antagonised mm. musicians almost certainly. Yeah. But um, the, the, the whole thing of John revolting and, and Olivia Neutron Bomb winding yes. people up didn't really affect me as um, a six-year-old kid. And of course, it was an event because they stayed at number one for so long and, and anything staying at number one for that long and occupying such a big chunk of the charts. You know, I think five or six of the top 10 records are from Greece. Mm. Um, you know, that is an event, whereas now, of course, records that kind of won't fuck off are kind of de rigueur. Um, you know, I mean, if I asked you, Al, what is number one right now? You possibly don't know. I've um, got no fucking idea <laughs> at all, mate. But it's Post Malone. He's been number one for three weeks. Before Who's that, he? Sam... Uh, well, quite. Uh, before that, Sam Smith was number one, and he was number one for seven weeks. And these right, things... No, 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 no. I, I know this one. He looks like the bloke who presents the Song for Europe thing in that episode of Father Ted. He does. He and that's all, exactly, that's all I know. That's all I know about him. Exactly like that. Yeah, but I mean, well, he's try some number... more. Try some more on me. I am a proper <laughs> high court judge when it comes to the charts of today. I don't know the previous number ones before Sam Smith, but I mean, like you know, people like Charlie Puth, who I'm sure you're familiar with. Oh, good. Um, yeah, him. Oh, go exactly. Charlie. No, these people. Charlie uh, uh, Puth. That's his name. Is this is like a this is like a throwback to about ten years ago, where there were all those uh, reality show pop stars who didn't seem to understand the concept of a stage name. Do you remember this? There was da- <laughs> David Snedden, uh, yes, Jessica Garlic. Um, who were the <laughs> no, others? your favourite, the Irish chap. What was his name? Oh yeah, um, I think it's actually pronounced less unpleasantly than it's spelt, um, and I don't want to offend. <laughs> Our many Irish listeners, but on paper, it's the ugliest name I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Ugan Quinn, I can't remember how you say it, but yeah, yeah I mean, Charlie I think it's like fitting... Owen or Ian or something like that, yeah. but my deep, deep ignorance of uh, the land of my forefathers is <laughs> coming out right now. <laughs> Charlie Puth is a pop star now, and he was like number one, I think, last year for like something like ten weeks or something. It, it just sounds but... like a toy dog that shits on the floor that, you, <laughs> that kids want for Christmas. But I mean, these things these things can happen now, um, and barely barely anyone sort of registers it really. Whereas back then, mm. of course, the charts were everything, and yes. something staying at number one for that long was a mahusive deal. So. I wasn't so resistant to it because I was a kid. And those songs were not bad songs, man. No. Taylor. I know this has already made us sound really old, but um, <laughs> if I wasn't really old, I'd be checking my phone now to see whether Greece actually was a double A because I went to see Greece uh, with my mum. Mm-hmm. Ah, um, yeah. Yeah, there was yeah, no... It was full of kids. I don't, I'm not sure that it was. I think they might have done a... You know how Spielberg used to do deals to get his films in at a lower 
certificate than they would have mm-hmm. been if they'd been made by anyone else. Mm. Um, then I don't know, maybe you know Stigwood or someone was pulling strings because I certainly went to see Greece. It might just yeah. have been unscrupulous people in the uh, in the ticket office at the Kidderminster ABC, but I don't know. I think, to be honest, I think Greece works as a palate cleanser because it's the uh, it sort of stands at the border between the 70s and the 70s, right? <laughs> Everything before Greece is the old 70s. Everything after Greece uh, is, you know, it, the same until 1982. Um, mm. It sort of, it came in and it blotted out the sun and then it left without leaving a trace. Um, and when it yeah. had gone, it's like... Um, you know, it's like the camera moved in and everything went dark and it was like a, a, a way to, to cut without anyone noticing. Next thing you know, uh, all the kids look like extras from the video to another brick in the wall. It's like, what the fuck? <laughs> what happened there? Yeah, yeah and, and, and that soundtrack album, I mean, it just started instantly appearing in people's houses as soon as the film came out. It was just such mm. a big record that, I mean, sort of every house had it. I mean, you, you, it, I'd say it was up there with, I don't know, Night Flight to Venus and perhaps... Saturday Night and, and Fever, perhaps, yeah. And Saturday Night Fever, yeah, exactly. As those those sort of just records that were almost like issued by the government to like everyone. Yes. Uh, it just seemed that everyone everyone owned those albums. Yeah, but I mean, because Saturday Night Fever, that was still a 1978 thing as well because, you know, I always equate it with 1977, but I, I believe Night Fever got to number one in early 1978. So it's like... As soon as that film's finished, oh, he's got another one now, and he's he's be he's decided to be Elvis instead of yeah, uh, and, and, and I think Travolta's ubiquity kind of is what wound people up perhaps so much. So mm. the venom that you see towards him during that year, I mean, it's the equivalent of kind of the way that Justin Bieber got treated in a way. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? That kind mm. of a, a, an an easy kind of signifier for rock fans, if you like, of teeny bop kind of ephemera which they could yeah. just kind of like slag off. And I think that's what you see in this episode to a certain extent. So what was in the news this week? Well, the peace talks between Israel and Egypt have broken down. There's been three days of protests in Tehran at the Shah. The People's Temple are getting ready for a bit of mass suicide in Jonestown, Guyana. Tommy Doherty, yay. Tommy Doherty has been suspended by Derby County after losing a libel case against Granada Television over his treatment of Dennis Law when he was manager of Man United. Milton Keynes unveils its concrete cows. All the 80s are coming, everyone. But the big news this week is that the BBC National Radio is moving all its frequencies around due to an international agreement and in an attempt to improve broadcast quality across the nation. Radio 1, for example, was moving from 247 metres to 275 and 285, and Radio 3 was taking its frequency. Now, to ensure that the pop-crazed youngsters didn't wake up on the morning of November the 23rd, turn on their trannies and be subjected to Dvorak Slavonic dancers by the Vienna Philharmonic Orchestra, the BBC have spent £3 million on a campaign to alert people to the forthcoming changes, including newspaper adverts and a nationwide mail-out campaign. And they still got 6,000 phone calls from people asking where the fuck their station had got to on the first day. Do you remember this? Oh, I yeah. remember it. 
I remember it being a massively big deal, and I remember yeah. getting those getting those stickers through the door to stick yes. on the radio, um, so that you knew ha- where to tune. Every station carried ads. Some station BBC stations, of, of course, even had little moments where they tuned into other stations yes. to show what was going on. There's a great moment where Radio Three DJ, I think, tunes to Radio One to the new two seventy five. Thing and he get he gets the first 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 of fat bottom girls by Queen yes. and he can't quite contain his laughter. But I mean <laughs> those numbers that that they're trying to you know get in our heads they got into my head because so much yeah. of my pop listening then was entirely dependent on radio other than Radio One and Dial a yeah. Disc which you know I was caught oh, dialing Dial a Disc now But um, apart from those two things we had nothing and this is pre tape days really. So yeah. the charts as something that you could confect yourself hadn't started happening. My dad had a reel-to-reel player, um, yeah. which, he, which he used to occasionally use. And somewhere lost in the attic, there's probably a recording of me singing Where Have All The Flowers Gone, aged about three oh. or something. But, um, but, you know, radio was what it was all about. Records at this stage were still very much bought for us, in a way, by our Western friends in order to kind of <laughs> introduce us to that culture. So it's a real mix. It was kind of like Jeff Love and Tidjuan want to brass play the hits of Lennon and McCartney and you know nice. music for pleasure Negro spirituals collections things like that occasional <laughs> occasional begging led to the odd chart compilation being bought home from town but if I saw a better matchbox car that I fancied I'd, I'd probably have got that instead this yeah. was pre this was pre music center days for us we had a record player we had a big mm. bush radio in the kitchen or the back room yeah. we had no kind of separates or any of that shit my dad no. had this reel to reel like I say that that, that had Harry Harry Belafonte on it and Indian stuff. So radio was absolutely where it was at. So so I remember this having a mahusive effect and those numbers absolutely getting into my head because of the because of the campaign and because just the sheer pleasure of sticking those stickers on the big red dial of our bush radio. Yeah, yeah. If, if, if any stickers get shoved through your door, man, in 1978, it's a fucking glorious day, isn't it? Free stickers were a tactic that Melody Maker tried to use later. It didn't work then, but <laughs> no, they didn't, did they? <laughs> Oh, well, towards the end, fuck me. It was all free stickers, Ugh. free posters. It never, never fucking worked. Sorry, I interrupted Taylor. This was a, a really big thing. Um, somewhere, and I, unfortunately, it's on a hard drive that I don't have access to at the moment, and I wish I could find it. Uh, somewhere I've got a recording from, I think, Radio 4, or it might have been Radio 3 from the time, of the announcer trying to explain to what he clearly believes to be an extremely elderly audience very slowly and patiently <laughs> what's going on and what you have to do and um, there's all these he talk, he says something about your tv if you have one and things like this Fuck. and it's it really is the oddest thing to imagine that this was part of the bbc output in our lifetimes you know yeah it's mm. unrecognizable as it's even unrecognizable as post-war culture it's like a last a last stand for the world of beef dripping and park drive <laughs> and people dying without ever having had an orgasm. And there's <laughs> there's also uh, an episode of Nationwide, which I've got um, right. somewhere, of uh, which was devoted to explaining uh, the, what's going on with BBC Radio Wavelengths. And they had a phone oh, in with a... Hell a phenomenally uncharismatic BBC bigwig talking a lot but not making it any clearer at all oh man um, and at one point Sue Lawley says it's obviously very very confusing 
<laughs> which is not Jesus. what you want your BBC flagship presenters <laughs> to be saying. And then they have a phone in, and it's just all these people phoning in, going, what's going on? I don't understand. I hate you. And it's like typical BBC. Like, whenever the subject is itself, um, it just goes to pieces, you know. Yeah. There's also a single, by which I know is on YouTube, of uh, the King's Singers. Yes. Mm -hmm. yes. <laughs> you know this, right? Called yes. Some Enchanted Wavelengths. Uh, yes. Trying to get this across in a cappella choral styly um i think they played that every night at closed down for for weeks beforehand it's a national moment like decimalization or something um, yes that's and, exactly and a real, what it is isn't it and a, and a real reminder that you know they were our state broadcaster do you know what i mean and and they yeah. felt like their own sort of state to themselves the bbc so. i mean, I mean could, you just saved three million pounds and said look right just get your fucking radio tomorrow turn your fucking knob and when you hear Dave Lee fucking Travis, that's it. Well done. <laughs> yeah. It's like, how how long is a radio dial? It's like, it's this yeah. baffling ordeal of like, you know, yeah. what's this bloke? He's, this bloke, he's speaking French. No, that's not Radio 1. Just keep going. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Quack, quack, oops. Yeah. Stop yes. there. <laughs> I mean, in in the in defence of Radio Three, they actually um, they were coming off of long wave to medium wave, so that must have been a an, a terrifying thing. <laughs> yeah, but their listeners went to university, so uh, well, yeah. it, they could handle yeah. it. Yeah. So on the cover of NME this week, Pauline Murray of Penetration. On the cover of Smash Hits, Blonde. It's also the first ever issue of Smash Hits. Oh. There you go. There's a pub quiz question for you. The number one LP in the UK is, of course, Greece. In America, the number one single is MacArthur Park by Donna Summer. And the number one LP is Live and More, also by Donna Summer. So, um, November 1978, what were we doing, chaps? I'd, uh, I think, just started junior school. And I was only one of one of only two Asian kids in the entire school, along along with my sister, who was three years ahead of me. Um, mm. And I remember I, uh, the first day of my junior school life, um, I called some kid a bastard or something. Yeah, I called him a <laughs> bastard, um, and he immediately grasped me up um, to the headmaster. And that night, I had to write an essay on two sides of an exercise book um, page. Um, called bastard i had to write bastard at the top of the page and then write a kind of thing about what bastard meant and how you shouldn't call people bastards because it turns <laughs> out this kid no it turns out this kid was a bastard or something oh. <laughs> and he got particularly offended by it so in a weird way because my sister says something really odd to me the other day that she remembers at the age of eight saying to my mum and i would have been five at this time that i was winding up because i had opinions about everything and I think I suspect that um, that this was—I wouldn't say the start of perhaps being a critic, but um, this was this was the start of really getting properly engaged with pop music. I think, and mm. I was, you know, absolutely religiously watching Top of the Pops and getting really excited by pop music a lot. So that's kind of where I was at the time. Whereas mm. previous episodes in the seventies, the memories are kind of foggy for me because, of course, you don't really remember stuff when you're three. Six, mm. I have real concrete memories of this time and certainly watching Top of the Pops is one of them. Taylor, was Top of the Pops a thing in your life this time? Yeah. Oh, of course it was. <laughs> yeah. No, I remember 1970, uh, 1978 extremely well. Um, uh, in fact, I was just thinking, uh, going around to see my nan 
seeing a kid walking down the street in full John Travolta get up with a leather jacket and a quiff and a DA and thinking, wow, imagine being as cool as that. Imagine being as cool as some scroat on Birch and Coppice with, a, with his dad's haircut. Yeah. No, I remember it really well. I mean, it's uh, what I mostly remember is how depressing everything looked. Um, I've got a really, really clear memory of the late 70s, everything looking like shit. Um, and I had, I had nothing to compare it to. It's not like I'd traveled. Um, yeah. But it was just the damp brickwork and the polluted overcast sky and mildewed sheds with ARP warden's helmets in. <laughs> you know, mouse, <laughs> mouse infested greengrocers and... Uh, yeah, rusty British cars. Almost at the age of six, I instinctively knew that uh, the island of Kauai existed somewhere, and this <laughs> wasn't it. Um, <laughs> the West Midlands in the late 1970s was not where it was at. Um, oh, man. It's uh, The weird thing, because when you look at the world itself in 1978, it was still full 70s, right? It was. You look mm. at objects and cars and buildings it might as well be 1971 or 1961 or 1951 to some extent <laughs> but the uh, people look different because it's partly as a result of punk but really it's because the high street was starting to change the high street was starting to catch up with pop music like you went into your local mm. clothes shop in 1977 and regardless of what the sex pistols were doing they'd have sold you a, a big wing collared white shirt yes. with a repeating <laughs> pattern of vintage cars like kids bedroom <laughs> wallpaper and a, a pair of grey slacks that were possibly over slack um, you go in the same <laughs> shop in November 1978 and they'd have a bright red sweatshirt and maybe some drain pipe jeans you know yeah I mean I was I was a few years older than you and I've got to say you know like the Wu-Tang Clan said you know 78 that's my favourite shit <laughs> everything was everything was lovely. Forest, champions of England, five comics a week. I'd be in the fourth year at junior school. So, you know, finally it was my, you know, me and my peers time to to shine and lord it over the playground. You know, three hours of football every day, um and top of the pops. It was fucking mint. <laughs> Two thousand eight D had just come out. So I was I was religiously reading that, and um, the other comic I loved at the time was Scoop. Did, did you remember that? No. Scoop? No, it didn't ring a bell. It was basically the football comic for kids who really loved football but already knew that they were shit at it, so they'd want to be uh, sports reporters instead. <laughs> and I think that was the comic that um, had the first computerised um, league where they'd, they'd kind of like divide the country up into different areas. Mm -hmm. uh, like the, you know, the Midlands and, you know, Scotland and, you know, all that shit. And then they'd feed the, the data into the computer and then, um, you know, tell you who won and who scored and all that kind of stuff. Thrilling times to be alive. <laughs> Did they have a picture of this so-called computer and it was actually a cardboard <laughs> box with a reel-to-reel -reel tape machine on the top? That was exactly what it was like. <laughs> this magazine sounds brilliant. Do you get like a, 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 du a double-page centre spread uh, pull out pinup of Brian Glanville. 
If only. I think oh, I was uh, football mags. It was all Roy the Rovers for me at that yes. time. I wasn't even aware of, of that. And and of course for the comics. I mean, it was it was the start of a, of a kind of rich internal life, if you like, for me. There was there was yeah. a lot of reading and a lot of listening going on at home. In '78, I moved from the old people's home that I've mentioned in the past to oh, a man. suburb of Coventry called Ernstford Grange, and that just brought me into contact with more kids. And there were good sides to that, of course, but there were also sort of less good sides. We'll go on to talk about these, I'm sure. But I'm not saying that I was aware of the wider political realities going on, but there was a sense in the kids that I met, there was a sense that things weren't that great with their parents and, mm. and with just life in general, you know, mm. and, and it brought me into contact with more kind of aggravation, I guess you yeah. could call it. Uh, we'll it 70s, Neil, aggro. <laughs> This period True. of time is really important to me as well, mostly because, as I was saying earlier, I was yeah, I was really aware of everything being hideous, and it was raining every single day. I mean, it always seemed to be sunny in my memories of the mid seventies, and then uh, when the weather broke at the end of the great summer of seventy seven, it <laughs> broke for all time, you know. And from then on, it was just dark and rainy. But I think this is why I'm so fond of that Aventis idea mm. of British luxury, right? You know, like, um, if you watch uh, programs from that time and you see people who are supposed to have done quite well for themselves and they're living in this world of uh, pale carpets and they've got a waterbed <laughs> with a, yes. a radio in the headboard <laughs> and uh, mm. whiskey in a decanter. And it's probably like White Horse or something, but they've put it in a decanter. And this was the dream of escape to me, right? Like, because the what big American cars and Hollywood movies were to British kids of the 50s, um, I mean, now that yeah, stuff was just yeah. grease. Mm. You know, it was, a, it was a fantasy. We couldn't really look to America because by 1978, all they had was malaise. So we had to dream of living like a successful London criminal. <laughs> or someone, someone in an advert for imperial leather soap. And I yes. still get excited now. If ever now I'm in a place which hasn't been redecorated and would have looked moderately glamorous in 1978, I still get really excited. <laughs> yeah, for me, for me that year, there's a couple of... Ob signifies of that year that aren't even records or anything else, they're objects. For me, it immediately recalls the stupidly big cabinet slash unit we got um, mm. in our living room to put our trinkets and shit in. Yes. And, two, and two particular objects. One was um, an ashtray. It was a martini ashtray, which Ooh. was, you know, just lovely. And I used to, I loved the smooth surfaces on it and everything. And it just <laughs> seemed to signify, yeah, the kind of luxury that Taylor's kind of hinting Opulence. at. Opulence. Uh, opulence, that's the word. And also there was a tartan ice bucket that was a, oh. a, an object of real... Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. it was an object of real fascination for me. So all of those mm. objects, suddenly they become memorable in 78. I'm not saying I don't remember anything from before 78, but 78 is when I start accreting all these memories in, in a sense where I'm remembering really tiny details as opposed to sort of general vaguenesses. So what else was on telly today? Well, BBC One has screened Jack Anore, Emu's Broadcasting Company, John Craven's News Round and Blue Peter, where they show you how to make Christmas presents for people you can't be asked to spend money on. They've just screened Nationwide, which has run a new Large's Lovely Beauty contest for outsized women. 
And tomorrow's world looks at salt mines in Eastern Europe and a new gadget that can sew a button that never falls off. That's nice. Tomorrow's world. Salt mines in Eastern Europe. Yeah. Truer than they thought. Truer than they thought. BBC Two has been running international tennis all afternoon, followed by Laura Nader, Tammy Wynette, Beneath the Pennines, and is currently halfway through a repeat of When the Boat Comes In. Zippy, George and Bungle have found out more about soft, hard, smooth and rough on Rainbow on ITV. (laughs) Oh, listen to us. Come on. Followed by Lux Familia, The Sullivans, Jabba Jaw, Little Ass on the Prairie, an episode of Crossroads where Shuey McPhee finds a photograph hidden by Mr Booth and Trevor Thatcher is trying to stop a poaching outbreak on Emmerdale Farm. They're currently showing Sale of the Century. Looks familiar. Fucking load of old cunts talking about even older shit. I know, I know. It'll never catch up. Enjoy it while it lasts. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Looks familiar, and the Sullivans. It's just, uh, even just hearing the names, I feel like I've got a cold. (laughs) (laughs) This is for me, those schedules are interesting, because this is for me, I think, also a time when um, the times of the day and the shows that are on become much more memorable. So that 5.30, for instance, is a time where I knew Ludwig would be on or something like that. Oh, the fucking five hell, minutes. Ludwig, yeah. And I knew that was the sure signifier. My dad would be on his way back from Courtauld's and he'd be through the door soon and dinner would be ready. So telly and, and timing becomes much more linked in this time. Yeah, I used to be like that because my dad was a lorry driver and so I got through a phase from probably round about this time for about a good three years expecting my dad to be killed in a, uh, on the motorway. <laughs> Every yeah. fucking day, and just sitting there, just mm-hmm. half an eye on Ludwig, other eye looking out the window. Blimey. So yeah, I mean, so I take that violin playing egg as a you know a portent of doom, <laughs> as it was originally attended. I think. Yeah, I remember about this time, or well, it would have been a couple of years later. Um, be for some reason being paranoid that my dad was going to be killed by the Yorkshire Ripper. Um, <laughs> what? <laughs> and I shared this worry with my mum one night, and she said no, because he only kills people in Yorkshire, which I thought was, <laughs> which I thought was a a really tactful, a really tactful way of explaining uh, part. You know, it, it explained to me well enough why I was wrong to be worried about this <laughs> without going into any gotcha. unpleasant detail. Mm, yeah. yeah, fucking hell. Yeah, I've forgotten all about that. You know, I was saying 1978 was a wonderland and everything. You know, there was just <laughs> all this shit going on. I mean, like, you know, we're about to, everyone's about to go on strike. Uh, uh, Yorkshire Ripper's knocking about. But, you know, I contend that, that the kids won the 70s hands down. Yeah. Didn't mm. seem like, to be, it didn't seem much fun being an adult in the 70s, but being a kid was fucking skill. <laughs> right then, pop crazy youngsters, it's time to go back, 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 all the way to November of 1978. Don't forget, we may coat down your favourite band or artist, but we never forget, they've been on top of the pops more times than we have. Good evening and a good welcome to the cream of the crop on this week's Top of the Pops. <laughs> It's the 
Thursday, November the 16th, 1978, and your host for this week's Top of the Pops is David Kid Jensen. We've already covered him in the first ever episode of Chart Music, but by this point, he's been drafted in from Radio Trent in 1976 to fill in for Emperor Roscoe for three months. But when Roscoe didn't come back from America, he got a full-time job there. At this point, he's handling the drive time slot on Radio 1. And, uh, chaps, when we discussed uh, him in the first episode, uh, Sarah and David, we kind of reached the opinion that uh, he was one of the good ones. Your opinion, please. Well, he's one of the good ones in the sense that you can't imagine him doing anything bad or naughty or exciting. I mean, he's a mild-mannered Scando-Canadian, right, which is like Mm. double-smoked mildness. If your mate mate said to you, oh, you've got to come out tonight, you've got to meet my mate, he's in town, he's a Danish-Canadian, you'd think, well, (laughs) I bet he's a nice guy, but... Yeah. I don't think I'm going to end tonight naked in jail. <laughs> so, oh, he's a no, he's a DJ. Oh, yeah, is he? Is he like the DJ version of Kelly Monteith in almost <laughs> e- every conceivable way? Yeah, no, yeah, he is actually. Yeah, he is likable, um, yeah. and and I think his friendship with with John Peel might have something to do with that. Um, mm. uh, but I mean. I still think, to a certain extent back then, we were kind of needy in Britain about America, and we kind of liked the fact that an American yeah. guy... Oh, he wasn't, you know, a USA guy, he was Canadian, but like, like Taylor says, but it was Good nice... Enough, it was nice he was over. Um, yeah. And oh, do, you, do you remember, Al, because he did have that history on Radio Trent, did you ever listen to yeah. him? Um, say, I can't say I did. It was more of your, it was more of your late night kind of right. DJ on Radio Trout. I mean, I can, I can remember Dale Winton uh, clearly. Uh, I remember the, the 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 day after. He was the kind of like, he was he was in the Simon Bates slot on Radio Trent in, by the early 80s. Mm-hmm. And the day after the riots in Ice and Green, uh, which were copycat riots from the Brixton riots in uh, 1981, uh, the news came on and it was about the rioting that had gone on in Ice and Green. And I remember Dale Winton saying, oh, well, if you were there last night, I hope you die. It's <laughs> George Benson oh or something like that. God. And I actually interviewed Dale Winton a few years ago. And I, I, I reminded him about that. And he said, oh, fucking hell, did I really say that? And I said, yeah, you did, mate. Bloody yeah. Well, I mean, Kid Jensen, he kind of went under everyone's radar. My, my, my wife, for instance, has different memories of him because she was witness to him and Peter Powell doing one of their Nescafe nights. Um, right, you know, and him handing out small sachets of coffee to girls in nightclubs, and she thought she thought back then that he was <laughs> a rewind, rewind. To, I, want, I want to hear all the details about no, my, this. My wife went to a, a, a club in Coventry called Tiffany's, and this was like this would have been around about seventy eight, seventy nine, and and um, it was a night whereby Peter Powell and David Kid Jensen just played records. It was all sponsored by Nescafe. So, right. so I don't know why Nescafe needed to reach the youth market, but um, yeah, they were just doling out free sachets of Nescafe instant coffee, and she remembers him being a little bit sleazy. But I mean, in comparison to what oh. surrounds him at that time, um, he's definitely, definitely one of the good ones. Why is Kid Jensen making a masturbatory <laughs> gesture at me? <laughs> no, he's doing. That he's got an handful of coffee beans, dog. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there was that Gareth Hunt thing going on at the time, of course. Mm. But, um, I mean, he, he had a kind of lesser stature, I think, than the other DJs. And he was, initially, wasn't he, a kind of prog rock fan and kind of played 
serious music, yes. quote unquote, That's and right, not pop yeah. stuff. But I mean, you can sort of see his stature in in a sense by looking at um, the da- the box of the David Kidd Jensen pop trivia game, which came out I think around about seventy eight. <laughs> right. In contrast to Mike Reed's later pop quiz game, mm. uh, which is obviously based on the TV series, the box for Mike Reed's one has Mike Reed like on it, and it also has Ben Volpierre, what's his name, out of Curiosity oh, Kills the as one mm. of the kids playing the game on the box, whereas David Kidd Jensen's is much more sober, much more serious, kind of looks yeah. like a Trivia Pursuit box, and it, it, he just kind of, I think he just kept his head down, didn't make as many waves as anyone else, and kept his position at Radio 1 for that long, precisely because he was quite anodyne, bland, and kind of easily digestible. He mm. wasn't as spikily strange or unsettling as a lot of the other DJs at that time. Mm. Also, oh, the elephant in the room here, of course, is that he went on to be the host of The Roxy. Um, yes. Oh, yeah. Which, like, after hosting Top of the Pops, I mean, like, for instance, you know, I mean, I worked on the music press for many years. Don't worry, not going to talk about it for 45 minutes. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but, you see, now, at the moment, I'm on the dole, and there's always the terrible fear that they're going to put me on the work programme and I'm going to end up handing out copies of the NME at tube stations. Oh, God, no. <laughs> which, which... No, that would be... No, I would not let that happen to you, Taylor. I would, I would kill you before that happened. <laughs> Don't worry. Thank you. You've got my Thank word you. on it. Please do. But there's... Uh, it, you've got to feel that that must have been how it felt for him, being the host mm. of The Roxy in the late 80s. The very, mm. A very similar, uh, very similar kind of feeling. But let's let's not forget that mm-hmm. he he also did uh, he also presented forty five a couple of years before this episode of Top of the Pops on on ITV. Kind of gone from like you, you know non league to uh, suddenly in the first division and hang now on, he's, hang on. You presented in the Roxy's drop down division. The TV show called Forty Five. We've, right, we've well, spoken about it for it was very lift off with a Shay esque. Yeah. Well, rather like a, a student on Pointless being asked a question about the Second World War. Uh, this is a bit before my time. <laughs> Sorry about that. He's standing here on this Top of the Pops in a Radio 1 sweatshirt with a shirt yes. on underneath with the big shirt yes. collars coming out yeah. from under the sides of the neck of the sweatshirt, which was a yeah. popular look at the time. So the impression is of a great white bird with the head <laughs> of Kid Jensen. Um, <laughs> and he says, um, without wanting to mess up uh, any of your links here, out, he says... Good evening and a good welcome to the mm. cream of the crop on this week's top of the pops. In that, and he mm. he he, uh, accent, uh, he emphasizes that like as if he'd already used the word pops, right? It doesn't yeah. like if, for instance, if you're in, introducing freeze and you say, and here's freeze with southern freeze, right? Yeah, he does it like that. He says it's the cream of the crop on this week's top of the pops. It's like no, you didn't. You didn't say pop, and I never, I never know whether they script these links for top of the pops because they always seem so on the hoof. They always get something wrong. They're always nonsensical, yeah. or they sound like they've been through Google Translate. It's not right. I, I mean, how long would it have taken to just get a bit of paper and write down what you're going to say first before yeah. you actually say it? Yeah, we need to, we need to, we need to look into this a bit more about, about the scripting of top of the pops. But also, also, where is he? Because mm. he does. He, he does these links mostly alone. Um, later on, they bring in a couple of girls to stand next to him. But he's not—he's clearly not in the studio where the action no. is happening. 
Um, it's either filmed before um, or after the actual ads. Yes. Um, now, I possibly this is because he did the drive time show at the time, and they were, might have been filming Top of the Pops while he was on the air, is the most mm. likely one. Um, but the effect is that, especially because the studio is all jagged lines mm. and sort of chilly blue, it looks like he's in some sort of ice world, um, sealed off from the rest of of the human race. And he's got a, a set of amplifiers behind him and a white piano and a drum kit. Um, and I think it's actually mm. the Boomtown Rats set from later in the program, except they don't have any amps on stage. So... None of this makes any sense at all, and it's it was no. bothering me all the way through it. It's really unsettling. <laughs> <sighs> the ice world you mentioned, perhaps a reflection of the popularity of the film Superman at the time, um, with his Antarctic, yeah, his yeah, Antarctic yeah. hideaway. Yeah, having a shirt and yeah. a sweatshirt over it is the definer of uh, being dressed by your mum, isn't it? Yeah, but it was it's like yeah. it's like the the Aventis uniform as mm. well. And I keep using that word. You you made that word up, not me, but it's perfect. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, you. you see it you see it uh, the whole uh, like in no actually no fame brought in a new look which was to yeah. wear a shirt with another shirt over the top <clears throat> of it. That's right, um, yeah. But yeah, no, they also had the sweatshirt with the shirt poking out under. When Peel used to wear that look, he always wore it somewhat sardonically, I thought. Um, there was something a bit sarky about mm. it. Whereas um, Kid is right in between. He could be one of the Bateses and one of the uh, Steve Wrights and one of those, but I think he's erring more towards the uh, Peebles, Peel, Vance end of things. Yeah, the specialist. Yes, yeah, exactly. Speaking of Bates, I uh, just yesterday <laughs> downloaded an episode of Just a Minute where from the 70s with Simon Bates is one of the uh, panellists. So I wanted to check out his quick wit and his verbal dexterity. And I listened to the first eight minutes of it and he hasn't said <laughs> anything yet. <laughs> is he with... Uh, who's he with? Is it with Kenneth Williams and all of the... Yeah, Kenneth Williams, Derek Nimmo. Yeah. Um, Peter Jones? I can't remember who the other one is. Yeah, that's Peter right. Jones. Oh, it's right. fucked then, isn't it? Yeah. No, he's just... No he said chance. he said nothing. He hasn't, hasn't interrupted, oh. hasn't... Yeah. Um, oh, I don't know whose idea was that. Who should we get? On? Yeah, who should we get on? Who's a, a, a quick wit and raconteur? And <laughs> what about Simon Bates? <laughs> so, kids, in all the things that Taylor pointed out earlier, um, wishes us a good evening and a good welcome, and introduces a top thirty rundown to the sound of "Giving Up, Giving In." by the three degrees. We've already covered the three degrees in chart musics four and six, so all I'll say is that this is a follow-up to Toast of Love, which only got to number 36 in May of 1976, and it's stuck at number 12. Have you ever heard a better three degrees tune than this? Right, because I wasn't familiar with this one. I mean, I would have heard it when it was mm. out at the time, but I don't remember it very well. Um, mm. I was surprised how much I like this because there's nothing to mm. it, but yeah. the the production makes it sound like you know like a like the the USS Theodore Roosevelt coming straight <laughs> at you at 200 <laughs> miles an hour. It's really good, and also if if Prince Charles likes something, how bad can it be, right? Because yes. he knows about everything. That bloke, mm. <laughs> he's yes, an he expert on everything: architecture, gardening, yeah. uh, comparative religion. Uh, the perfect murder. Um, yeah. Who would argue with him? Actually, no. 
who would argue with him apart from Sheila Ferguson of the Three Degrees because he tried to hit on her, didn't he? he did. And she knocked yes, him did, back. Yeah. God bless her. Yeah. Um, yeah. She said, because um, I was reading about this about a week ago. She said she didn't want to be another notch on his bedpost. <laughs> Like, mm. as if he was like like Warren Beatty or something. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> but in a way, I, if that had happened, how brilliant would that have been? Because I think oh, we, we can... We, we, we've discussed this before, Taylor. It would have been fucking amazing. Uh, you see, I, I would have heard that, but just like this record, I've forgotten all about it. <laughs> I certainly yeah. agree. Princess Sheila would have been much better than oh, God, what we yeah. got. Although, although I suspect she would have died even sooner. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Funny you should say that about um, Prince Charles Taylor because they just played Prince Charles's thirtieth birthday this very week. Yeah, and slapped away the party hands afterwards. <laughs> I'm sure. Yes. Fucking dirty bastard. <laughs> I think this record's possibly the best Three Degrees records record precisely because it's kind of shorn of their personalities, if you like. It, it's it's a it's a monstrous kind of robo tune. It's it's it. Mm. There is very little disco in this episode. When you look around the chart, shockingly little. Yeah, the Jacksons are in there. Boney Emma are in there. Alicia Bridges, is, I think, is in the thirties. And and uh, but this is the only one there. What the rundown really reminds me of is I think I've mentioned in the past you know doing the old thumbs up thumbs down for stuff that you liked and stuff that you didn't like but I remember at this time yes. it, it got beyond that to where you'd actually have to state if something came up you know that was good you had to say oh god I hope they play that please play that at the mm. beginning of every episode, you, you know, your next half hour of happiness is kind of hinging on what they play and what they didn't play. So the rundown was a real moment of kind of like, oh, God, I hope they play that. And they often, obviously, frequently didn't. Um, but, yeah, the rundown was charged with, with, with that, with that hope that things that you liked will come on. But also that constant yeah. thumb up, thumb down, don't like that, like this. Yes. <laughs> the other thing about this chart rundown is that the way that the pictures are so shoddy as well. It's like yeah. they just, all the pictures of the acts that come up, it's like they've just got any old picture. Just shove it on a slide. <laughs> Never mind when yeah. it's from. Just crop it roughly to 4-3. And it's like there's a, that's, there's a picture of the stones where you can only see three of them. <laughs> like, yes. Keith is off the side. You can't see. There's a picture of Public Image Limited where John Lydon is leaning out of yeah. the frame. Yeah. <laughs> He's not even in the picture. It's like just you know, get some picture you you took of them yourself when you saw them in fine fare, you know, <laughs> filling up their fucking car at a petrol station. My favourite one out of those is the one of X-ray specs, where it looks like they're just on a fag break at their jobs in the fucking cat food factory. Oh, there's a great one of um, uh, Elvis Costello in the attractions where they all look like uh, like sarcastic Nazi doctors. <laughs> <laughs> like kind of yes. sneering down at the camera with these glasses yeah. on. Yeah, and Dean Freeman looking like a cat sitting in his own pace. <laughs> <laughs> and this this heat wave doing a uh, doing a human pyramid. <laughs> yes, yeah, but the heat wave uh, band and uh, made a little bit of extra cash as a motorcycle display team. <laughs> So the following week, Giving Up, Giving In dropped to number 17. Oh, top of the pops, you've let them down again. But the follow-up, Woman in Love, spent three weeks at number three in February of 1979. <laughs>
show begins properly with no introduction for the first band, the Buzzcocks and their latest single, Promises. Formed at the Bolton Institute of Technology in 1976, Buzzcocks became one of the first of the new punk groups to set up their own record label when they released the Spiral Scratch EP in January of 1977. They eventually signed with the United Artists in August of 1977, but their first single, Orgasm Addict, was kept off the BBC playlist and failed to chart. Can't imagine why. However, they scored their first top 40 hit in February of 1978 with What Do I Get? This is a follow-up to Ever Fallen In Love, which got to number 12 earlier this month and is still in the charts at number 20, but this song is not due for release until tomorrow. Do you notice at the start, the camera has serious difficulty trying to get Pete Shelley into focus? And then yeah. a, little, a little bit later on, it's really wobbling. It's like Top of the Pops as become real supermarket tv by this point it's really been <laughs> bashed out and you know mm, mm. not a lot of well that the last time we were all in this place we watched that black and white one where it was really yes. professional and everything was beautifully framed yeah. and beautifully lit and uh, uh beautifully directed this really is just yeah put the band on the stage point a couple of cameras at them and and hope for the best it felt like a work experience moment, that point, because he, he you can see yeah. him not only be out of focus, but then get overly in focus and pull back. <laughs> and there's, you, can, you can sense his, his panic, in a sense. It is an odd moment, that. Kind of punks arrived in Top of the Pops land, doesn't it? Yeah, that's fast turnover as well, isn't it? I never realised that they put those singles out so close to each other. Especially as this is yeah. the point where they, the, the drop-off begins with Buzzcocks, I think. This song, Ever mm. Fallen In Love is, you know, by common consensus is the peak. Um, and then this one. Yeah. I mean, well, when you hear it on singles going steady, it's clearly the point where the graph starts to travel downwards. Um, although when you hear it on this program coming out of nowhere, all sort of flat and bright and speedy and compressed, mm. it sounds pretty brilliant. Even after 40 years of terrible groups doing artless, gormless copies of this sound. I don't know about Fall Off. I, I know what you mean, mm. but I mean, for me, there's the odd trap Buzzcocks do later on. Um, everybody's happy nowadays and things like that that I, that I, that I still kind of love. And, and this is, I think, still them at their, um, at their peak. There is minimal pogoing going on, which I think the cameraman spots really early on. That this supposed punk audience isn't really punking it up. Um, so yes. there's very much a focus on the band, which I think is absolutely right for the Buzzcocks. No. Which were, I mean, a band really always about Shelley, about him writing these amazing um, love songs. Um, they're really unmarketable, the Buzzcocks, when you look at them on this stage. Um, they're, they're a kind of uncom- uncomfortable. An uncompromising, kind of not in an attitudinal way, but in, in it, the whole thing about kids getting up on the stage, it, it's like that. This is like an audience of Top of the Pops kids actually stood on stage. And they are kids, uh, however old they might have been at the time. They, they come across like kids. As we'll see later with kind of Elvis Costello and the Boontown Rats, the new wave punk end of things had by this time really started to sound for me like kind of big. Big, like early Springsteen or something. Buzzcocks defiantly don't go for anything big on Promises. It's a small song about a little relationship in a small world. Mm. And it's all the more affecting 
for it, I'd say. It's very 60s in their kind of look and sound. It reminded me of kind of like a great lost kind of mid-60s psych record. It's just a great song. Um, there is a, a, another hit in the mm. chart um, already um, at this time by um, Eric Clapton, fresh off his most racist year yet. Um, <laughs> um, I think this is, this is a great song. Cannot get enough of the buzzcocks. And I think... Um, I, I could be wrong, but Parks didn't. Parks Taylor didn't you? Um, you Parks, you a boy. Yeah, you, you've um, <laughs> you've spoken with Pete, haven't you? And yeah, I interviewed him a couple of years ago. Um, I think I think he'd had a drink, but he was mm. all right. Um, he was very nice, very polite and friendly. Uh, he, he had the air of a man who'd been interviewed a few too many times, but <laughs> um, no, he was exactly as you'd expect, like self-deprecating and. Uh, uh, chirpy you know yeah yeah this is a bit like an early 60s record with but with all the machismo sucked out of it yeah because you know if this record had been made in 66 they'd have had a singer trying to sound like howling wolf or something you know Mm. like Mm. they would have been an ex r&b band rather than an ex ex punk band um but yeah i think the secret of buzzcocks is that um they could do both of the things that pop songs do best which is uh the miniaturization of huge feelings and mm. the expansion of tiny details so you get these two things happening at once and it's like the stairs effect in vertigo like a sort of zoom in and pull back at the same time um and the sort of the, the sort of flat urgency of the sound works really well for about two albums uh, and partly because it fits the peculiarly puritanical feel of some of their songs, which is the thing that really made them stellar. Because not only were they not macho, they were sort of um, lusty, but simultaneously a bit kind of, you know... Re- I mean, this is more apparent in the really early stuff, the Howard DeVoto lyrics, most of which are about, you know, sexual disgust and repulsion mm. and stuff. But there's a bit of that in Pete Shelley's songs as well. He's always cowering away from people and stuff. Or, you know, getting pissed off with people for being too flighty and things. And it's really good. I mean, for the time, it, it would have sounded more uh, more remarkable than it does now because it, it was a very new thing, you know. Yeah. And yeah, you, you're right. They look fantastic, partly because they look so crap, you know, but mm. in, yeah. Yeah. in yeah. such a great way. They look like the kind of kids at school whose uh, mums make really funny smelling teas yeah. <laughs> with savoury rice or something. So Pete Shelley's in a jumper, like uh, it's like a vintage mm. Partick Thistle kit, or you know what it's like? It's like yes. a roll of fruit polos, <laughs> Just a, <laughs> a, a stack of these colours. And the um, Steve Diggle's got white jeans on that look like they've been turned up at the but like taken up, not turned up, taken up yeah. at the bottom, turned inside. Uh, uh, yeah. Steve Garvey's all in black with dark glasses, like uh, the milk tray man. If if milk tray was a bit out of his budget, um, <laughs> it's almost as if he's tucked his flares into his socks or something. What's yeah, going on there? Yeah, it's like a sort of a, a bit SAS, isn't it? Sinbad trousers. Yeah. And the, uh, what's his name? John Marr, the drummer's got a voluminous wine-coloured Lurex shirt with a massive white tie. It's uh, yeah. He looks quite great. something. The, the drummer yeah. looks. Brilliant. Uh, the best looking drummer in this show, this side of Clem Burke. He looks absolutely fantastic. 
<laughs> oh, and the other thing, Pete Shelley's wearing shoes. Like, it's not, um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? They're not like sort of boots or, or trainers, they're shoes. Um, and he's got that hair where he's going a bit bold at the front, but he's got a whale tail at the back, you know, where mm. the hair sort of mm. curls and to a point on either side of the back of his neck, like the business end of an anchor. Um, mm. Yeah, no, they look fantastic. They're, they're just... They're totally different from everyone else on the show, and, and not just in their look and everything else, but the songwriting is just completely different. What's simultaneously both heartbreaking and amazing about early Buzzcock stuff is how quickly they use up and jettison hooks. I mean, hooks that other bands would kill for, and probably if they wrote songs would spin them out for four minutes or something because they're such good hooks. But with the Buzzcocks, they just kind of blaze through these things in about two minutes, and the conciseness of them is, is just breathtaking. There's nothing else on this show remotely like the Buzzcocks. Yeah, they're, they're, to me, they're, they're like almost like the last great British art school band in the sense of mm. using bits little bits and pieces of art theory and applying them to pop music without mm. like sort of to expand it without breaking it and contract it mm. to concentrate its power whereas after this uh you'd get bands that were arty which is not the same thing at all you know they'd, they'd be like yeah. uh you know sudi or uh you know pretentious in the true sense whereas this is just it's mm. just uh uh, pure pop music but improved by sitting down yeah. and thinking about how you're going to do it first hmm. and like some other records that will come to there is of course i mean i don't know if pe were people conscious at this time of um shelly pete shelly's sexuality or not i don't know because the the, the songs no. are ambiguous enough to be applicable to kind of any gender any gender and any relationship so as we'll see later yeah. Well, I mean, I, I didn't know that, but then again, I was 10. And, uh, you know, if, if, if they weren't toting a handbag around and saying, oh, ducker, well, then he, they weren't gay. He virtually does. He virtually does on <laughs> on the line, ooh, strictly made for fools, which mm. the, the sheer <laughs> campness of the delivery yeah, yeah. of that on the record is mm. um, amply... Uh, emphasised by the visuals here, <laughs> where he basically uh, mm. um, does a little kind of pursed mouth sort of mm, into the camera. It's fucking brilliant. It yeah. looks fantastic. <laughs> so two weeks later, Promises entered the chart at number 37 and it got as high as number 20 in January of 1979. The follow-up, Everybody's Happy Nowadays, would only get to number 29 and they would never bother the top 20 again, splitting up for the first time time in 
on his own, describes the next act as the Demon Prince of the Third Division, which sounds like the best Roy of the Rovers strip ever. Can you imagine that? <laughs> a Satanist takes over a mediocre football club and sacrifices virgin fans on the pitch to avoid relegation. And then, you know, they're... And they're battling against um, Liverton or whatever. <laughs> that would have been awesome. My favourite strip here in Royal Rovers, I think, was the safest hands in soccer. Uh, the oh, one about, the one about the goalie because I was a goalie. Yeah, because this was a time where, like Mighty Mouse, you could be a professional top-flight footballer despite being morbidly obese. <laughs> the uh, the safe stands in soccer was my favourite because I I was a an aspiring goalkeeper. But mm. and I was quite good at it, and at the time I was one of the tallest in my class. But seeing as I grew up to be just about five foot eight, um, it's probably good that I didn't put too much stock in goalkeeping as a future career. It was brilliant the way they kind of kept the fiction alive. I remember. When, do you remember when he got shot? Yeah. Yes. And 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 then the issue. Who could forget? Who could forget? Yeah. And then the week after, I remember the issue. Like the central section of it was just purely devoted to well wishes from yes. celebrities and there were like there were like notes from all kinds of people more common wise and you know loads of famous footballers saying get well soon Roy you know you, you know you'll be back in training soon and all this so they, they really kept the fiction going brilliantly with that they always used to have um photographs of celebrities with Roy Race and in fact <laughs> yeah, with, with a life-size cutout of Roy yeah. Race that they used to like get people at the IPC offices and say all right so and it was as if they hadn't noticed it was as if like yes. hey here we are with Roy Race it's like he just seems to ghost past defenders with his uh... <laughs> the thing that really surprises me looking back on that era is is why didn't they do a Roy of the Rovers comic about pop stars Hmm, there was never that crossover. Pop, actually, didn't really get into comics much. Looking took care of that. So you, yeah. never, you never really saw pop stars cropping up in Roy the Rovers or, of course, Wizard and Chips or anything like that. Um, it, it, it was kept very... It was like looking owned pop music, really. Yeah. Yeah, I think it was a missed opportunity there because, because yeah. boys and girls would read it, wouldn't they? Looking, when they did used to cover pop, uh -huh. I never used to read Looking. It actually used to get disdained by me in much the same way that sort of in my house, ITV was faintly disdained. So, so Looking would be as well. And, and when I did get to look at a copy, which I think was about 82, I remember there was a, the, the, the lead story was a three-page kind of comic about Book's Fizz. And I remember just reading it with disgust, <laughs> just thinking it's pathetic. And it was, was quite, it I the Adventures was, of Buck's Fizz? Yeah, I think it was. I think it yeah. was. It was the Adventures of Buck's Fizz, and they, they, oh. I think they, they had the ability to time travel or something. Um, <laughs> what? I, uh, yeah, that could be something I dreamt. I should. Well, I should they've been sent that. into the future to kill David Van Day. Yes. Not pretty much. Pretty much any character in any comic back then was, of course, one step away from finding a secret time portal through to the land of the dinosaurs yeah. somehow. So yeah. I think that's what was going on with them. So, so I found. I remember feeling that was so pathetic it was beneath me. Perhaps the start of my teenagerdom. Thing about Roy Race, he was all right, but could he do it on a wet Wednesday night in Stoke without, <laughs> no. without turning into papier mache? <laughs> so, 
The next song introduced by Kid is Part-Time Love by Elton John. Born in Pinner in 1947, Reg Dwight was a child prodigy who could play the piano at the age of four and won a junior scholarship to the Royal Academy of Music at the age of 11. By the age of 15, he had a weekend job as a pub pianist and by the age of 17, he'd formed a band called Bluesology, which had become Long John Baldry's backing band. In 1968, he became a staff songwriter for Dick James, the publisher of The Beatles, and sang on a range of cover version LPs, including the Top of the Pop series. His first solo LP, Elton John, was released in 1970, and a year later, he had his first chart hit when Your Song got to number seven in February of 1971. He then went on for a run of 21 top 40 hits before announcing that he was retiring from the stage in late 1977. This song is the follow-up to Ego, which got to number 34 in April of this year, and it's the first single off his new album, A Single Man, and it's currently a non-mover at 24. He's also the current chairman of Watford FC, hence the demon prince of the third division remark. Yeah, and it's a video. Yes. Yeah. The... And what a video. Yeah. It's a mock-up of Ready, Steady, Go, isn't it? Yeah. Elton sat at the piano, um, and he's he's got some kind of clockwork orange appearance about him, hasn't he? He's got a bowler hat on, and he's he's had a bit of makeup, and he's mm. got this weird sideburn thing going on where the bottom of the sideburn comes down and curls around the, the underside of his ears. Really yeah, heavy. what it looks like is if in the universe of a clockwork orange there was a, um, a dad who... Tried to dress young and yes. didn't quite get it. Who tried to get into googly gogol? <laughs> <laughs> he looks kind of bowling esque, I think. Really heavy eyeliner and dark, yeah. and he looks he looks frankly like he's either speeding or coked out of his face. Um, yes, he looks re- sort of damaged in a way, and um, yeah, keen to get it all over with. The Kathy McGowan yeah. being sat there, I'm guessing, as the elder stateswoman, seen it all before. Kathy McGowan, the original host of Ready, Steady, Go, is in the video, sat at Elton's feet. Yeah, looking like she's embalmed and, like, averting yes. her gaze for the whole thing. She doesn't yeah. look at him at any point. No. It's a bit weird. She looks like something a bit wrong with her. And, yeah, um, yeah he definitely very much has that that uh, cokey look of looking simultaneously wide awake and really tired. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he also... As well as the bowler hat, he's got this kind of uh, low-cut T-shirt thing with his his chest hair uh, frothing yes. out the top of it, like yes. the like the crest of a Japanese wave, or yes. uh, or the or the, the the fur that grows on a, a pool of small dog vomit that's laying <laughs> unnoticed under the bed for about three months. Oh, you paint nice. such a picture. Yeah, it's not it's not nice. But yeah, the main thing of course about this is the 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 kids in the video mm, yes. who are mm. um it's supposed to look from the sixties, so they've got in a load of mod revivalists. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who were obviously around at the time and trying desperately to look like they're from what, thirteen years earlier. Yeah. Which seems yeah. an ab- absurdly short amount of time. It now, really does, doesn't it? Because of this telescoping of pop time. Like, if, if if someone now tried to look like they were from, what would it be, 2004? 2004. Yeah, all you have to do is get an older phone. And, <laughs> yes. And there yeah. you go. You you can pass. This is a recent thing, though, because 
I, I mean, what's this, 1978? You definitely had people in 1992 trying to look like they were from 1978. Um, or, yeah. in fact, a year or two later than that, right? You had uh, these animal men and mm. Smash and stuff trying to look like they were from 1978. And that then seemed a far and distant place, you know? Yeah. Uh, it's, it's definitely a recent thing that, that this is contracted. The thing is that they are really obviously from 1978. That's the trouble. You yes. would never, never mistake. The, the, the best one is the girl who's got it. It's like she's tried to go that extra step and it's ended up a bit wrong. And she's got a shiny white plastic mm. Mac, like yes. a butcher's coat, with yeah. homemade coloured polka dots stuck on it. Yeah. But the effect is that she looks like a walking twister playmat. Um, yes. <laughs> and also, she's obviously had some speed as well for the full mm. 60s effect because she's got a very determined look on her face <laughs> as, she, as she does those dances. I wonder where they got these kids from. Um, because some could... of them aren't kids. Yeah. yeah some, of them are, some of them look quite old. And, and I don't really get the point of doing this kind of homage to ready steady go um well, how many so- how many people would have got it your dad's would have got it you know mum and dad would have got it maybe i mean it, it, it seeing the dancers the mods with the button down collars the parkers etc um i couldn't actually tell where they got the kids from and crucially whether the kids were actually taking the piss a little bit because mm. because three three audience members for me really stick out the guy with the parker who just yeah. smirks continually through the whole thing and i can't tell whether he's he's kind of joking about it in a sense. Um, mm. the, the, his face is that it's really odd because obviously it's a seventy-eight episode, but that look of smirking that could be that could be somebody doing top bants right now. It's, yes. it, it, there's something about that. The girl in the white jumpsuit or, or, or the, with the pink badge on it. I think the, yeah, the, the white jacket that, that Taylor's yeah. putting out also leaps out. There's a dude combing his hair which I think was a nice touch. Um, mm. But there's this strange moment suddenly where the camera cuts to a variety of sort of body oddities. It just cuts to a girl's, a girl's crotch, um, Kathy McGowan's knees, and then a girl just going batshit <laughs> in, a, in a kind of gold puffer jacket who annoyed the hell out of me because she obscures a girl in a check dress who I really wanted to see. I wanted to see yeah. what she looked like. But this yes. girl gets in, the, gets in the way massively. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah. I like she she the, it looks gorgeous, the girl in the background. Okay. She looks like she's really got a fantastic look going for this video. Great yeah. 60s look. And what little you can see of her, she's lovely. But she's obscured by this... this, uh, this, this uh, idiot flinging herself around <laughs> yeah, in a yeah. sort of a disco <laughs> outfit. Me immensely. And there's me one immensely. bloke who's completely uh, out of sync with everyone else. He, he actually looks like razors in the long Good Friday. <laughs> he's got that kind of like long tash going off and he's massive. Mm-hmm. And the, the backing singer, there was one bloke, uh, he's got a kind of a Bee Gees look on him. And yeah, I thought, yeah. is that a woman? Because he, he looked like, um, he looked like Diana Rigg when she mm. was being a the brummy mate of Butch in Theatre of Blood. <laughs> yeah. And there's, yeah, yeah, and there's yeah. a really, there's a really uh, blatant cleavage shot as well, isn't there, near the end? Oh, yeah, just a bit. But also, yeah. the, even though all these kids are in the video trying to look like the 60s, Elton isn't dressed like the 60s. No. Neither are his backing singers and neither are that no. featured dancer. There's the backing singers. One of them's Bee Gees up. One of them looks like Ringo Starr in, yes. in the, the 80s. Um, yeah. It's a really 
strange mix. It's like if you're going to do this video and if you're going to get the set and you're going to get all these kids in, why not go the, the whole way? Why not do it properly? Yeah, yeah. They were just yeah. I think Billy Joel was probably up. watching this and going, oh, I could do this miles better. Yeah. <laughs> there, yeah. Is a, there, is, there is a way I in which... I can piss this out of my arse, this. <laughs> Fuck Elton. There is a way in which the dancers are kind of right in a way for the music because mm. you could imagine this perhaps. I mean, you know, it's a long shot, but it has got a kind of Northern Soul disco-y feel to it. And, and it mm. could it could have worked. I mean, if, can we talk about the song a little bit? Because, yeah, let's. Why not? You know? Because, I mean, I, I have you know big problems with Elton John. Not, not that he's done anything mahusively objectionable. I just don't like him that much. And, and kind of from his early work, the only one I'd sort of pluck out would be perhaps Benny and the Jets. And that's just because I like it because it's so damn slow. But um, I like Elton when he does disco. And when his voice is in a lower register, as it is here. Um, mm. But as with other bands that we'll go on to talk about, I find it difficult, very difficult, to go beyond the hits. I often find myself in the middle of the day thinking the oddest kind of existential thought, which is that somewhere in the world, somebody right now is making the choice to listen to Elton John's uh, Made in England. And it, and, it, right. and it does my head in, just thinking <laughs> for a moment. So I, 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 that one's one of those people. My wife is a big fan, and she's constantly tried to persuade me of the virtues of Goodbye Yellow Brick Road and also the Captain Fantastic album. But for me, mm. it's all about the disco, really. It's about this one yeah. and, of course, um, the Kiki D song, about the only ones what, that I can what, kind of stomach by what, him. Well, this does sound to me like the kind of like the natural follow-up to Don't Go Breaking My Heart. It's got that sort of chugging undertow with the cello on it, a bit like ELO, mm. and it's. Uh, but it seems awesomely ignorable. This song. It sounds <laughs> like it was constructed to affect as few people as possible. It's done with a lot of precision, and it's mm. got quite a fluid feel to it. So it's. Uh, you can tell it's like quotes good music, but it's it just seems like it does absolutely nothing. And yet, mm. this is the proof that he's some sort of evil genius because I was walking down the street about three days ago and I had a song in my head and I was like, what's that song? What is it? And wouldn't you know it? It was this. Um, <laughs> really, really strange, yeah. But Elton strikes me as one of those rock stars who seems to have no real reason to do what he does because yeah. you know he doesn't even write his own words because he's got nothing to mm. say. Mm. Um, he never never seems to be any point to what he's doing and all that success didn't seem to make him happy at all mm. there's always something a bit desperate and anxious and uncomfortable yeah. about him however bland the music might be he seems very on edge yeah because ordinarily if, if somebody if somebody like didn't wasn't comfortable with fame that their normal thing would be i don't know i just want to sing my songs but you're right they're not his songs i mean he's writing the music but they're not his Lyrics, and that's like yeah. all important. The lyrics to this are written by a guy called Gary Osborne, who sang backing vocals on Sugar Baby Love by the Rubettes and wrote a ton of jingles um, early on in the 70s. And, yeah. uh, you know, but, but he constantly has to do this. So what are you? Are you a pianist or a pop star? And, and, and if, if you're a pop star, surely you have to, I don't know, assert your own... Yeah, you have to have a little grain of yourself in there, whereas he is always calling on other people for words. Um, which makes me slightly mistrust him, I think. Well, yeah. I think that, that that's probably one of the reasons why he's lasted for so long. What do you mean? Because, you know, well, because he doesn't get stuck in a rut. I mean, yeah. you know, the, se the 70s, as, uh, as we'll discover later on in this episode, you know, 70s was a wash with male singer-songwriters. 
Um, uh, but they all ended up saying the same thing and they they fucked off pretty early in most cases. But to me, Elton John always seemed like uh, it always seemed like grown up music when I was a kid. And when I became grown up, it still sounds like grown up music. And the and the lyrical content doesn't help. Yeah. You know that that wouldn't mean jack shit to me as a ten year old. You know every love you had, if you had a girlfriend, it wouldn't be a part time love because you know. <laughs> You 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 spend most of your time playing football and then do a bit of hand holding and then, you know, back on your chopper and fucking off around the estate. I think you're right about the adult thing because I mean he's I think he's the only male singer to have been introduced, you know, by Ronnie Corbett on the two Ronnies. I don't remember that ever right. being, an, you know, if Elkie Brooks or Barbara Dixon couldn't make it that week. Um, mm. I, I remember Elton John doing it. So you're right, he is very adult-orientated. And for, for yeah. adults, not not kids. Apart from the Kiki D song, which I think was just a big hit with everybody. Yeah, and I mean, all, all the all the good shit that we would have liked as kids is him in, you know, him in massive bother boots and stuff like that. He'd already been and gone. <laughs> So to us, he was, you know, he was the kind of person you'd see, you'd see the kind of like albums in, in your mate's mum's record collection. Yeah. And it would, would mean just as much as Des O'Connor or Max Bygraves. <laughs> to me, the great tragedy of Elton John is that he never got to sing uh, a rewrite of Candle in the Wind at the funeral of Princess Sheila Ferguson. <laughs> So the following week, part-time love jumped eight places to number 16, stayed there for a week, then dropped to number 20, and then back up to number 15, its highest position. The follow-up, Song for Guy, got to number four in January of Elton John failed to get your circulation going, and here's Shawadi Wadi with an effervescent little mover they call Pretty Little Angel Lies. Pretty Little Angel Lies. Pretty Little Angel, Pretty Little Angel, Pretty Little, Pretty Little, Pretty Little Angel. Kid, still alone, reassures us that if the last song didn't give us a musical erection, the next one will. It's Pretty Little Angel Lies by Shawadi Wadi. We've already covered Shawadi Wadi in chart music number four. So let's just say that they're on a run of six top five singles on the bounce. This is a cover of the Curtis Lee song, which got to number 47 in 1961. It's the follow-up to A Little Bit of Soap, which got to number five in July of this year. And it's the first single from the new LP, Crepes and Drapes. And it's up from number 16 to number seven. Now, chaps, you know how there's nothing more boring than other people's dreams, yeah? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, mine happened to be brilliant and fascinating. I've had so many dreams about Show Waddy Waddy since we started doing chart music. Um, (laughs) Last week, last week I dreamed, I ended up getting into a really bad argument with Price. We were telling each other to fuck off and everything because there was a ninth member of Show Waddy Waddy that only I could see. (laughs) <laughs> and we were talking about him we were talking about it and I was going what about the, the seat lad there was a ninth <laughs> member of the show what do you want he was a seat lad right he he, he was he was really tubby he did all the Ted dancing absolutely immaculately and the other thing I can remember was he had you know those snake belt clasps 
on those um, elastic belts like Ranji Ram used to have around his yeah. turban. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Right? He, he had two of them with stars on it so it looked like the Confederate flag. <laughs> oh, that's an interesting choice. And he was brilliant. And we were, and we were, talking, and we were talking about Show Waddy Waddy and I said, oh, the, the, the Sikh lad, he's fucking brilliant, isn't it? And Price is going, what, what are you going on about? And we ended up having this screaming row at each other. And so I'd, I'd just like to apologise to the... Simon Price in my imagination for uh, for calling him a cunt. So show Waddy Waddy Neil. We've already discussed them, haven't we? Mm, we have. And this is. But you never run out of things to say about Show Waddy Waddy. No, no, you really don't. You really don't. <laughs> I mean, I I call this actually sort of lazy autopilot Shawads. Because, yeah. um, you know, this song, I mean, I think this uh, the guy who did it originally also went on to do Under the Moon of Love. It's almost like they're going through his hits collection, just kind of running yeah. out of things to do. Cashing in to an extent. I mean, Sha Na Na did this as well. And, of course, they're in mm. Greece this year. Greece is big this year. This was always going to be a guaranteed hit. What you can see in the performance is that by now the Wads are confident yeah. of conducting a performance completely above the audience really um yeah the 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 audience looked bored to be honest with you even during the sax break when the band start doing some strange version of the biscuit game around the sax player and tweaking his (laughs) ear and stuff there's there's, there's one girl who thinks it's hilarious um the remaining kind of pam ewing alikes because there's a lot of them dallas begins to broadcast in 78 they just look totally unimpressed um and they look at they look that the audience are looking at Shawadi Wadi with the same kind of dead-eyed mix of bewilderment and boredom you you, you get from the Midwich Cuckoos. So so yeah, it's autopilot stuff. Could have been on summertime special. Not really a great top of the pops moment, but let's face it that they like the three degrees were on every fucking episode of Top of the Pops from this period. Yeah, I mean, and you do say that they're getting a bit of a leg up from Greece, but surely. You know, after seeing the the films and the and the clips and everything, you know, um, John Travolta and his mates are looking a little bit more virile than uh, than these dads from Leicester. Maybe so, maybe so. Yeah. Well, the the thing is, it's amazing how hopeless they are. That they're not. I mean, they're not serious. You know, it is. It's like a mm. it's like a load of teachers at an end of term assembly. You know, or or, or um. Or when all the kids' TV presenters did a number on all-star record breakers. It's like, mm. it doesn't seem like this yes. is their actual job. Um, it's mm. like, I mean, what they have instead of a bass man is just that oaf who just drops his voice and goes like, <laughs> pretty little angel yeah. lies. Like, uh, there's, no, <laughs> there's no resonance at all. It's like a kid doing an impression of his dad. Um, yeah. <laughs> They're besieged from all sides, aren't they? Because now this is the, this is the year that darts and Rocky Sharp and mm-hmm. the replays are, are starting to encroach upon their patch. <laughs> you yeah. know, clicking their fingers like in West Side Story. You know, they've got to defend their turf, haven't they? Yeah, it's they the really did get piece of turf left behind. Very bad. I, as a kid, though, there was two things about Shawadi Wadi that I remember. First of all, I was fascinated by the contrast between the colours of their day-glow teddy boy stage wear. Because mm. you know how six-year-olds think in a weird, free associative, uh, almost LSD-type way? Mm-hmm. Um, to me, their differently coloured suits were linked in my mind to the differently coloured foam microphone covers on the comedians, um, <laughs> which... <laughs> also used to fascinate me and i remember as a kid thinking there must be 
some significance to the the uh, doling out of the different colours. Like maybe the lead singer reminded someone of a banana that's just about ready for the bin. Um, <laughs> Let me stop you there, Taylor, because I've done a little bit of research on Shiwadiwari. Since this is, I think this is the third time we've spoken about them. <laughs> Um, you know, we haven't even spoken about bloody T-Rex or Prince yet, but mm-hmm. we've fucking three goes around <laughs> and show Waddy Waddy. Uh, apparently, they had... Um, there was no choosing of the colours. They, they used to swap round. They used to swap their um, their, 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 uh, their gear around. So they wear a different oh, right. colour every time. Oh. Yeah. Did they so, all fit uh, into each other's suits? I don't know. I don't, I don't want to think about it, to be honest. That's disappointing. Because I thought, you know, it'd be kind of like Star Trek, but if you ended up with a red thing, you were going to die that night or something. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not like Reservoir Dogs either. No, but the, the other thing that, that always creep, creeped me out was the singer's uh, weird boyishness. Yeah, mm. well, the, the, the rest of the group looked like Sweeney villains or third division centre halves you know or, yeah. or south london debt collectors like the oh except <laughs> except for the bass player who looks like a melancholy grass but um what's weird is looking at <laughs> looking at him now this uh what's his name again the singer dave bartram thank you dave bartram looks like uh one of those aging young-faced blokes right who look ageless until they're about 38 and then a couple of cracks appear, and then a few more, and then suddenly in their mid-40s, their whole face just collapses in one go. <laughs> like Paul McCartney being the most famous of these, right? Um, yes. But, and he, he looks in this clip like he's in the few more cracks stage, like maybe, mm. A, mm. maybe a young 41, right? Like yeah. Jim Dale, which he reminds me of, or, or who he really reminds me of, which is Roy North. Right, you know, you know Basil <gasps> yes. Brush's piss mop, Roy mm. North, right? Yes, it's, exactly. Yes, and so I looked it up. Presenter of Get It Together, that's right. That great yeah, and pop, pop show of the era. Yeah, and Hull City fan. Yeah, but yes. I looked it up, and Dave Bartram is twenty six in this clip. So, <gasps> wow. so he was five or six years younger than the rest of the band, who were all in their mm. early thirties. But he looked proportionately just as old for his age as they do. Mm. Um, mm. so whatever they were doing to make themselves look like shit they were all doing it together <laughs> nice I think da- but I think people thought Dave Bartram was handsome he was kind of like a Leicester mm. a Leicester um, Oliver Tobias in a way <laughs> yeah <laughs> but pretty little like, a, a, a nice bloke as well apparently Dave Bartram uh, a friend of mine's been round his ass many a time and oft nice bloke nice. apparently it, the trouble is, though, just one last thing about this record. Um, the original is awful as well. I checked out the original. Yeah. <laughs> for a song that for a song that is a Phil Spector production and is written by you know the Boyce Hart combination, who went on to write so many great things for the Monkeys, it's a really mm. shit record. I mean, the thing about the Ted revivalism, it, it was it was definitely a look back to the fifties, but it was always a look back to the American fifties. I don't think anybody wanted a British fifties back anytime no, soon. No, this had nothing to do with skiffle or anything like that. I don't no, think it was no, a totally, totally different. Tommy thing. Steele, 
Yeah, no, it's a totally, totally different thing. But I mean, it stuck around for so bloody long as well. Because yeah, I mean, after really the Shawads, like you're talking about, you're, you're talking about, you know, darts and then flying pickets, and and this shit never goes away for a, for a long, long time. By the way, I did some more research, and I actually dug up an interview with uh, Dave Bartram um, a few years ago about Top of the Pops, and uh, he was asked oh. when he did Top of the Pops, what was it like? Was it a was it an all day job, or was it just a case of turn up for the cameras? And he said. Top of the Pops was an all-day job and very boring to boot. We'd arrive around 11am to go through camera positions and pretty much spend the rest of the day drinking tea and twiddling our thumbs between rehearsals. There'd be a dress run at about 4pm and then it was up to the BBC bar to socialise with the other artists before recording at 8pm-ish. That part wasn't boring. And the interviewer said, I say, Mr Roy, those crow's feet look a bit out of place. (laughs) (laughs) He brought up about having to re-record the tracks for broadcast on Top of the Pops because this is something that's always fascinated us. Uh, He said, yeah, the tracks had to be re-recorded in three hours under the supervision of a musician's union representative who was supposed to be on our side. It was a crazy situation, but most artists found a way around it by giving the rep a master tape that had been swapped for a much better version, sometimes the original master. Uh, the yeah. unions were very militant at that time and so self-important. We despised them. <laughs> Fucking scab. Scab waddy <laughs> And he also mentions in this interview that round about this time, Show Waddy Waddy actually did a band photo shoot on Skegness Beach wearing German army helmets and nothing else. Oh, my God. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> apparently, apparently they, they were never they were never released. Uh, but uh, apparently, a couple of them have popped up on uh, eBay every now and again. <laughs> so, if anybody's out there wants to buy a photo of Show Waddy Waddy naked uh, in SS helmets, then there you go. That's a niche porn market right there. Yeah. The following week, Pretty Little Angel Eyes nudged up to number five, its highest position. It would be their last top ten hit, however. The follow-up, remember then, would only get to number 17 in April of 1979 and diminishing returns set in. Sadly, Show Waddy Waddy were beheaded on stage by ISIS in a gig in Luxembourg a few weeks ago. That was the other dream about a man. Little, little, little angel At number 29 this week, could it be that Elvis Costello is getting ready for our wavelength changes next week with Radio Radio? alone speculates that the next act may have written their latest single in wild anticipation of a national radio network moving its frequencies about uh no kid that's the first thing you've got wrong this uh, episode <laughs> it's actually radio radio by elvis costello and the attractions born in london in 1954 declan mcmanus was of course the son of ross mcmanus a band leader best known for writing and singing i'm a secret lemonade drinker for the r white's advertising campaign in 1973 
After leaving school, he formed a pub rock band called Flip Sitter, worked as a roader for Brinsley Schwartz, held down day jobs at Elizabeth Arden as a data entry clerk and a computer operator for Midland Bank before signing to Stiff Records in early 1977. However, it wasn't until March of 1978 that he scored his first chart hit with his fifth single, I Don't Want to Go to Chelsea, which got to number 16. This is the follow-up to Pump It Up, which got to number 24 in June of this year, and it's up from number 33 to number 29. Now, this song has already caused Mither when Elvis interrupted a performance of Less Than Zero on Saturday Night Live in December of 1977, and he played this instead when he was told not to and was subsequently banned from the show for 12 years. It's also a repeat of the Top of the Pops performance he made three weeks previously. Very important to get over that for obvious reasons as time goes on. Well, this is, yeah, it's the tail end single, isn't it, from this year's model? I think I prefer Chelsea and I think I prefer Pump It Up. It's probably my least yeah. favourite of those. It does his usual habit of actually um, getting to the chorus and then not singing the chorus. It, the, the, his choruses are kind of quite often instrumental in a way and he kind of leads up to them. Um, yeah. But, but um, I think some places this was actually called Radio Comma radio as opposed to radio radio yeah. commas the importance of commas of course um yeah. being proven to me by the rolling stone single paint it black which in america was sometimes yes. called paint it comma black which was interpreted as a radio what like thing. it was a command like <laughs> paint my fence yeah. or something yeah absolutely um there's some single versions of that single in america yeah no i've seen it paint it comma black and it was interpreted by some people. I didn't realize. Yeah, as being as being a kind of racist thing. Um, so they changed it in the future. But for me, Elvis, I've I've kind of got problems with him to a certain extent because when I started playing guitar and standing on a stage, the thing that I got from so many fucking people because I wear NHS specs as well is you look dead like Elvis Costello, um, which, used to, <laughs> which used to bug me a lot. To me, he kind of errs on the side of worthiness rather than excitement. But um, a really literate pop writer, and um, I'm very, very not confused by Elvis Costello, but I can't love him. I can love Pump It Up. I have no problem with that record at all mm. because just physically, it's just a great thing, especially heard over a loud system. But the rest of it, I don't know. Um, I'm not a massive fan of Elvis at all, but this year's model is a, is a cracking album. I think of all the acts that I dislike, Elvis Costello is the one I like the most. Do you know what I mean? It's like, I can see that the bloke is talented yeah, yeah. and I can appreciate that he's not just talented like Sting is talented you know in some sort of meaningless muso way he can actually write mm. powerful songs that work about as well as that particular kind of pop song can and I'm ashamed to say that I listened to one of his albums a couple of months ago King of America and uh, and I enjoyed it <laughs> which was really a nasty feeling but Mm. But I'm, but you know, but I'm, I'm 45 years old, right? So <laughs> fuck me is what I'm saying. You know what I mean? Fuck me and people like me. Um, but you, yeah. I, yeah, I don't want to go. Chelsea's a good record. This is a pretty good record. Oliver's Army. I but, know exactly what Taylor's talking about because when I, when I 
later on started investigating Elvis Costello a bit on my own reconnaissance and seeking out albums, I guess. And I think the first album that I properly listened to by him was a much later one, Blood and Chocolate, I think it was 86 or something like that. I did sort of, in a sense, admire the craft, but at the same time, I felt I was listening because it was something I ought to do. Do you know what I mean? Like, like, mm. like in order to sort of appreciate, not appreciate music, but in order to kind of... It was that I ought to listen to this. This is, you know, proper music in a sense, and I've always faintly resisted that. And and there, there's still that. Yeah. There's still that with Elvis Costello, even at this young age. For me, there's no single Elvis Costello record that's pure off the hook young excitement in a way. They're all kind of mm. very, you know, carefully written. And I, and I find that with an awful lot of what what would be called new wave, I guess, it is mm. really. It's a new wave, but it seems like a reassertion of a very old wave. And and, and it seems like a reassertion yeah. of very sort of Dylan-esque, Springsteen-esque kind of qualities in pop, which, which are not always been the ones that, for me, have led to the most excitement. And I'd see Elvis Costello um, as being kind of emblematic of that. I really didn't like him because I thought he had a bit of a cheek uh, calling himself Elvis. And uh, that kind of, you know, that kind of got on my wick a bit. But then, you know... Pump it up, I don't want to go to Chelsea. Perfect ten year old punk. You know, to to me he was he was he was he was proper punk. You know, because he was just pissed off. He, even when he was on a stage, he looked pissed off. And particularly on this performance, he's he's you know, I'd have been very happy with this simply because, you know, he had a go at at what I thought was Kid Jensen when he points him out <laughs> and sings the radio's in the hands of lots of silly men. And then, and then injects his own arm, <laughs> yeah. which I wouldn't have understood. That's right, because he's pointing. Is he? He's pointing across the studio, at, because that's right. Because you said this is a a repeat from the previous week or the week before, and it was Tony Blackburn, right? Yes. Was doing it. Like, so he's pointing across the studio at Tony Blackburn when he's singing about silly men, yeah. but because on this one, Kid Jensen clearly isn't in the studio, it doesn't quite work, but. Yeah. yeah, but you wouldn't know that. I'd be thinking, I'd be thinking, oh, God, what are you having to go with Kid Jensen for? He probably <laughs> plays you loads of times. Yeah, he it's seems really unfair. nice. And, and the thing is, I, I actually, I, I went back. Uh, I've got the the top of the pops that it was originally on. And I've, strangely enough, I've got it. I've got both the UK gold version and the BBC four version because I'm a sad bastard. <laughs> and um, in both cases, um, it kind of like you don't see a cut back to Tony Blackburn at the end and it just crashes into the next song oh, what a and shame. there's half there's half an introduction so I've always wondered what Tony Blackburn said in response <laughs> probably I don't know Buddy Holly was better than you you specky cunt <laughs> yeah he just come back and says like and uh, fuck you too Elvis Costello <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I may be a silly man but I at least I don't use racist slurs <laughs> And also, I mean, uh, I mean, one thing about this song is that it, you know, I love this song. I'm sorry, I, re- I really do. Um, there's enough of that ten year. You don't have to apologise, Al. It's all right. <laughs> no, this is his best period, though, isn't it? This is the definitely when he was. I mean, at his when best. he started doing country and western, that was that was a huge, <laughs> a huge letdown. <laughs> no, but the band, the band are, are, are quite clearly going for it. Uh, unfortunately, when the camera pulls back at the end. Uh, it's at the side, so it appears that there's only two people up the front, which is a bit, 
upsetting. <laughs> See, I did a review, like a live review of Elvis Costello once when I was at Melody Maker in his real, you know, his real classic period, classicist period, mm. right, when he was doing old 50s tunes and stuff, and it was really miserable. And I gave him a really bad review, and I said all the stuff that I've said here, but in a much more unpleasant way, because I was like 22 <laughs> or something. And... Um, about three weeks later, I was backstage at some gig. It might have been the Blur gig in Mile End, actually. And somebody introduced me to Joe Strummer. Um, and they went, oh, meet, meet Joe Strummer. And I went, okay. And he, he said, oh, yeah, no, wait, wait, Taylor Parks. And incredibly, Joe Strummer still read the music papers, <laughs> right, in the 90s. Wow. No Brilliant. idea why he would have done this. And he went, oh, Taylor Parks, yeah, you wrote that thing about Elvis Costello the other week, didn't you? And I said, yeah. Oh. And he says... He says, I've been waiting 25 years for someone to say that about that cunt. <laughs> so after Fantastic. that, Joe Strummer's, you know, never a huge Clash fan, mm. but he went right on my list of the greats after that. <laughs> but, then he said, but then he said, oh, come over here, I'll introduce you to Chrissy Hind. And I said, no, no please. <laughs> because you didn't read that one, but I don't think the, the uh, famously, uh, famously ass-kicking Chrissy Hind would be delighted to meet me <laughs> got to be honest so the following week radio radio dropped down to number 35 see you have a go at tony blackburn man bad mm. shit happens however the follow-up oliver's army spent three weeks at number two held off the top spot by tragedy by the bgs and i will survive by gloria gainer <laughs> If you are someone rather special right now, here's some music you can cuddle, cuddle up to by its heat wave. And this is called Always and Forever. Always and forever Each moment with you Kid still quarantined at the back is obviously feeling lonely as he encourages the country to have a bit of a furkle on the settee to the next song Always and Forever by Heatwave Formed in London in 1975 when lead singer Johnny Wilder a former US Army serviceman based in West Germany linked up with Rod Temperton a keyboard player from Cleethorpes who was working at a Ross frozen food factory in Grimsby through an advert in Melody Maker Heatwave were a multinational funk disco band. They first broke the UK chart with the number two smash Boogie Nights, which was held off the top spot in March of 1977 by When I Need You by The Old Sailor. <laughs> this song, which was written by Rod Temperton in his flat in Hull on a Wurlitzer keyboard with a telly on top of it, next to a pile of dirty washing, was originally the B-side of Mind Blowing Decisions, which got to number 12 in July of this year. But when it was picked up on by the radio, it was flipped over and it charged back up the charts. It's up this week from number 26 to number 23. Now, Neil, we've discussed before the British funk acts of Mm -hmm, the era mm -hmm. seem to be years behind their American counterparts. And this is another example, but who gives a fuck when it's as good as this? I I love this. And, and, you know, I, 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 I sense at probably at the time... 
I would have booed this. I would have hated it. I was a kid. I wanted fastness and excitement. And, you know, I just really would not have responded to this song at all, apart from in boredom. But now, obviously, I mean... Holding hands with girls. (laughs) Exactly. But, I mean, Rod Temperton's a fucking genius, considering what he made in his life and the astonishing songs he wrote. The crucial thing that that this hinges on is Johnny Wilder's Mm -hmm. vocal which is just wonderful. Yeah. It's a song that contains lots of chances for a singer to really wank it all up um, and get yes. all melismatic, but he keeps things really restrained and only breaks out into a falsetto towards the end, and, it, and, it, and it's it's beautifully done. However, yeah, like I say, at the time, I would have really resisted it, but as a grown-up, where you where you really are sort of grown-up, where, where you want records that don't just remind you of moments with people, but kind of express things you want to express to people in a way that's possibly too sappy to you for you to actually say face to face. But um, it's a great kind of, you know, last chance for slow dance record. Um, yes. And, and it, the crucial to it is Rod Temperton's songwriting, which just leaves things yeah. open in a lovely kind of big, wide, Philly soul kind of way. Um, but also, yeah, the, 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 the precision and gentleness of Johnny Wilder's vocal. You can imagine anyone covering this now would put it full of honking, shouting kind of singing because there's that much space within it. But he keeps it really, really restrained. Um, It's a great record, which I probably would have hated at the time. Mm. It's one of those songs that when someone does it on the karaoke, the whole pub turns round and looks at them and go and, and thinks to themselves, do, do you really know what you've let yourself in for? <laughs> it's like the, it's like the male version of "Loving You" by Minnie Ripperton. <laughs> it's like have you have you actually thought through the fucking heights you've got to reach in this song, and you're going to make a complete cunt of yourself by the end of it, unless you're very good indeed. Absolutely. And Johnny Wilder at no point does that thing that most shit singers do of closing their eyes and concentrating. He looks at the audience. Yeah. He sings it, and it's believable. He sings it with. With yeah. convic- conviction and consequently it's, it's convincing he, he's just a wonderful singer singing a great song mm. yeah although he does do it through that fixed rictus grin <laughs> which kind of gets me down a bit it's like you know how um miles davis said of uh, louis armstrong you know i loved him but i couldn't stand all that grinning he <laughs> yeah, did. Yeah. it's a bit there's something about that smile singing that 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 I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. I don't know, it turns me off a bit. Taylor, that face, that grin, I mean, he would have cracked that grin on stage at, I don't know, like sort of wheel tappers and shunters style, style working men's clubs. Mm. He would have just had that fixated on his face. And the moment he comes on yeah. stage, yeah. I don't think, you know, 
that expression would have changed no matter where he was playing or who he was singing to. Because, I mean, he's looking out at kids who they don't look quite as bored as they do for other things. And some of them are like swaying. Mm. But it's it's yeah. not really a song for kids. You know, it's a song for, for yeah. grown up lovers and grown up partners. But he's still... Yeah, but it's a, he's, it's a bit more understandable for kids than part-time love. Yeah, yeah, it you is. You know, it's like, oh, I really fancy you. Let's go out and, I don't know, go to Wimper. <laughs> but have he, a big he, bend he, he, he put, and hold hands in the shopping centre. <laughs> he puts it across with generosity, though, and tenderness. I, I think he's, yeah. he does a great performance there. And what the fuck are the yeah. band wearing? Yeah, they're like the black shawaddy waddy. <laughs> they've got like they've got the differently coloured day glow uh, fake satin waistcoats, um, but with their zodiac symbol on the yeah. tip of one wing yes, collar, they have, yeah. and the musical notes on the tip of one flares, and it's it's pretty outmoded for 1978. Yeah. You have to say only by a year or two. But the audience are all the post-punk oiks staring up at them like they've stepped out of another century. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Although, yeah. although two of the band do have the star sign Cancer, the symbol of which does look like a paperclip. So that's yes. sort of a, a little bit punk. Yeah. I thought it was a safety pin. Yeah. Oh, and Mr. Orange on the keyboards. And I yes. don't know who he is. He's certainly not Rod he's Temperton. Not, he's not, no. I think because he became a Brian Wilson, didn't he? And just yes, stayed did, at yes, home yeah. writing the songs. Um, he looks like he's dressed and wigged up as the 70s for yes. like some shit pot noodle advert or something. <laughs> like he'd, It's like he'd come on right at the end and say something in a comically deep voice. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's yeah, it's like, not like, a good look. Like the, like the bloke in the baby sham advert. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Baby yeah. He's almost, it's almost like animatronic, like it's or like a CGI member of the band. He's like, it, yeah, I feel for him a bit because he's, you know, he thinks he looks great, but yeah, it's time has not been kind. <laughs> but I mean, the show Waddy Waddy thing, exactly, because it, it does look like they've, you know, oh, fucking hell, we haven't got our costumes. Um, can we ask Show Waddy Waddy to, if we can rip the arms off their drapes and wear them? Uh, so. So they either look a bit like Show Waddy Waddy or, I've got in my notes, uh, like a really um, high-end Turkish restaurant waiters. They had they had quite a tragic history, didn't they, Heatwave? Mm. When you look at their biog, they've got a, a series of disasters befell different members in turn. Like, mm. it's almost as if, like you might expect of a band that had Damien Thorne on the drums, yes. you know. Just one after another, these terrible, improbable things happening. Mm. It was quite upsetting. They must have been, cur- they yeah. must have been cursed by somebody. I, 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 sorry, this is a digression, but I saw somebody the other night, as soon as you talk about 78, um, I never knew about the curse that apparently Jimmy Page put on Eddie and the Hot Rods. <laughs> have you ever heard this now Ed, eddie and the hot rods no. eddie and the hot rods what was their single it was like do anything you do, do yeah yeah they're, they're, they're big hit and the front cover of that is um at least the crowley with sort of mickey mouse ears and right. you know the, 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 they were that was a big hit everything was being said about them that it was all going to happy happen for them and they were kind of their new pistols and they were going to you know carry all before them and then everything just started majorly fucking up for that band in every way just like a really horrible shit happening to them and the band are convinced that jimmy page as you know an elisa crowley aficionado and if somebody takes it really seriously was offended by their kind of puerile use of the crowley image 
and um, cursed them. And they, re they remain convinced of this. Although Jimmy, I think, has denied it. So maybe something similar happened to Heatwave. I have no idea. I had no idea about that until the other night. <laughs> no, I didn't know. I mean, I should say, I was... It's I, just a shame that... It's just a shame that Jimmy Page wasn't a big fan of John Travolta because <laughs> yes. uh, then he could have done us all a favour by responding to events later in this show. <laughs> <laughs> so the following week, Always and Forever leapt up to number 14 and would eventually spend two weeks at number nine. The follow-up, Razzle Dazzle, only got to number 43 in June of 1979 and the group were beset by misfortune. Rod Temperton quit the band to work with Quincy Jones and wrote Off the Wall, Thriller and Rock With You. The bass player Mario Mantezzi was stabbed by his girlfriend after a row at a party, hosted by Elton John, which left him temporarily blind, mute and paralysed. And lead singer Johnny Wilder was left paralysed from the neck down after a car accident. Jesus. That's fucking depressing, that is, isn't yeah. it? Just like that, coming up a little bit later. It seems like the last few Top of the Pops I've introduced have featured Blondie, and tonight is no exception. This time, they're hanging on the telephone. I'm in the bumble, just the one across the hall. If you don't answer, I'll just bring it off the wall. Kid is surrounded by four women who look like they're in a bus queue and are bored as fuck as he introduces Hanging on the Telephone by Blonde. Thing is, it doesn't look like he's gone into a crowd, right? He quite clearly is still in the same place where he was before yeah. and these people have been brought to him and they look like they've been drugged and kidnapped <laughs> and flown in an unmarked light aircraft out to his <laughs> fortress of solitude. They're, they're not, they're really not thrilled to be there. They all are either no. a bit, a bit irritated mm. or really worried about something, possibly whether they're ever going to escape from Jensen's icy place <laughs> of exile. Maybe. And it's, they're it's weird, they're weird though, choices kid. as well. They look, they're weird. They don't look like the usual top of the pops yeah. girls. They're all really dressed down mm. and they've all got, yeah, that, that mopey haunted look like, Sadie Atkins or yeah. Lynette Squeaky Froom. <laughs> a bit, yeah. Oh, speaking of which, I, speaking of Lynette Squeaky Froom, I, I was watching a thing recently of uh, an interview with Sarah Jane Moore, who mm. was the woman who shortly after Squeaky tried to assassinate uh, Gerald Ford. Also, this woman, Sarah Jane Moore, also tried to assassinate Gerald Ford shortly afterwards and similarly made a pig's ear of it. And they interviewed, she just got out of prison or something. And it was like a recent interview. And they said to her, so why did you try and kill President Ford? <laughs> and her reply was, everybody asks me that. <laughs> <laughs> so formed in New York in 1974 by two former members of the Stilettos, Debbie Harry and Chris Stein, Blondie had their first chart hit in Australia when the chart show Countdown accidentally played the video to the B-side of their single X Offender in the flesh and it got to number two there. 
After signing to Chrysalis Records in late 1977, they had their first UK chart hit with Denis, which stayed at number two for three weeks and was denied the number one spot by Wuthering Heights by Kate Bush and Match Stalk Men and Match Stalk Fucking Cats and Dogs <laughs> by Brian and Michael. <sighs> This is the second single off the LP Parallel Lines, and it's a cover of a 1976 song by short-lived LA power pop band The Nerves. It's the follow-up to Picture This, which got to number 12 in September of this year, and it's up from number 27 to number 18. As they're currently playing in Toad's Hall in New Haven on their 1978 American tour tonight, we get the promo video. Gentlemen, comment. Well, this is another record that leaps out of the TV speakers like a puma that's been starved in the boot of a car for three days. It's like you put it on and, I mean, all the times I watched this Top of the Pops, there wasn't a single time when I didn't have to rewind this and watch it Mm. again because it's so great and like all good pop records, it feels like it's over too soon. Mm. Um, It makes it sound so easy as well because it's so carefully put together it all the work that's gone into this none of which shows it doesn't seem labored in any way but the part of the reason why this is so great like the last time i was here we were talking about altered images and i said the key to that record is the way the production made the band sound slick and sloppy at the same time and the result was like a sort of homemade version of Parallel Lines. Well, this is the real thing. And this is like the masterclass in how to do that. Like the the, the work that, that Mike Chapman did on this record and on the band, drilling the band so they sounded tight, but leaving them just loose enough to sound cool. Mm. And doing the same thing with the record, producing it so it sounded like a commercial hit, but leaving it just loose and rough enough to sound exciting. Um, this is the difference between punk or new wave or indie that doesn't make it and the stuff that does. Um, and so few people understand how to do it well. It's just an astonishing record and uh, just, as I say, a masterclass in how to break out of the cheap rehearsal room and into real people's hearts. Yeah, completely. And if, if you want a, an illustration of just how important Mike Chapman is to this... Listen to the Nerves original from, I think, the year before, two years before. The, the, the original by the Nerves, I mean, it is a great song anyway. And Jack Lee, actually, who wrote the song, he also writes, um, I think he wrote Will Anything Happen, which is also on Parallel Lines, which is also a great, great song. But it's, it's, again, one of those musicians' records, and you can hear the band kind of enjoying it. But what Mike Chapman does with it, he, he, Mike Chapman later on producers like Trevor Horn and, and Martin Hanna, they become almost stars in their own right. And they'd be about kind of grand gestures in a sense. Whereas what Mike Chapman is all about in his production is about really finding out the moments that make a pop song matter and work and just accentuating them absolutely brilliantly. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, um, the, the there's a lovely thing about this record, about the whole Blondie period round about now. This kind of like, um, it's American ne'er-do-wells, really, sharpened up by good old British professionalism in a way. And it's it's mm. such a great fucking record, such an amazing singer as well. And this is never pointed out. I think people focus on Debbie Harry's appearance, of course, because she just looks gorgeous. She just looks astonishing mm. always. And so totally fanciable to anybody looking at this video. She just looks amazing. But, you know, she's 32 mm. at this time. And 
Um, which of course we didn't know back then. I just assumed she was sort of, you know, early 20s, but she was 32 yeah. by then. But she's developed such an amazing set of pipes. It's kind of like, if you want to know how good a singer Debbie Harry is, put parallel lines on and you will find yourself singing along inevitably. Try and sing along to picture this. Genuinely try and sing along to picture this, all of it, the way she would in a single take. It leaves you faint. It leaves you lightheaded. Because it's it's tough. It's really tough. The thing she sets herself in a in a singer, not in a histrionic sense, but just so much powerful melody. She looks amazing in this video. Yeah. Clem and Jimmy yeah. look fucking so cool in this video. Um, this is a producer's yeah. record to a certain extent, but just a band that I would say the absolute peak of their powers, and and just one of the greatest singles. I mean that. The whole run of singles Blondie comes up with at this period is just just so so good. But this is one of the strongest, I would say, of Blondie's singles, and mm. and from a brilliant album. There's nothing to say about this really, apart from just how fucking brilliant it is. Yeah, and it manages to it manages to collapse so many different associations and suggestions into such a small space mm. in terms of the sound and the presentation, um, and like also the other thing about about Blondie. Did you say everyone always? goes on about Debbie Harry looking great but what's important to note there is that it's no small thing that they pulled off which is to do to consciously do a pin-up thing mm. that's done really intelligently without demeaning yeah. either the the woman or the gawping wanking lads Absolutely. right <laughs> there's nobody is demeaned it, it it's a it's it, it's done with such class and intelligence although my confession is that I never fancied Debbie Harry, <laughs> and I still don't understand why. I do not understand why, and mm. I feel really bad about this. Why haven't I got a crush on Debbie Harry, despite the fact that she's one of the sexiest women in pop history? And also, if I went to um, if I went to some sort of dating agency, right, like the <laughs> like the the Wedded Bliss agency or uh, or or the or the Blaney Bureau for Friendship and Marriage and they said so so what what sort of person would you be looking for uh, among the things that that I'd say would be um smart confident sassy uh stylishly dressed in a trashy kind of way funny talented uh into good music possibly from New York uh, and <laughs> in her thirties, um, and and they'd say, "Oh, okay, well, we've got just the person for you here, <laughs> Debbie Harry." And I'd go, I, I, nah. I'd go, eh, I mean, fuck it out. How <laughs> dare I? How dare I? How dare I presume to not particularly fancy Debbie? It's really rude, yeah. and it's like feels like an insult to Blondie's presentation, you know. Mm. It doesn't make sense, and I feel that I've let everyone down. <laughs> but oh, but this, I've got to say, this video is the closest that I get because there's a sort of fiery... I'll tell you another one as well, Daisy Duke. No, but this <laughs> Good video God, is... Good God, you pervert! No, I know. It, it just the never happened. But this you? This video... I know, I know. But yeah, this, this video's got that fiery edge to it. Especially it's a brilliant on the, video, isn't it? Especially on the whoa whoa bits towards the end of the record, mm. which uh, to me that's the key to the whole to the whole song because it's where Debbie breaks out of that glassy facade yeah, yeah, yeah. and gives it some real grit, which means that it has twice the impact that it would have had if she'd sung the whole song like Courtney Love, mm, you know, mm. a sort of 
emotional dynamics, right? Because the, the best thing about concise pop songs is that they're so small structurally that just a tiny adjustment has a massive effect. Mm. Like one of those those little sports cars with a steering wheel the size of a foreign coin. <laughs> <laughs> one quarter turn is like you, you're in a field. Um, but yeah. the, the video's the video's amazing. You know, just like the song, it's really simple, but it puts the band over fucking big style. I think the key shot is her putting a mascara on in the uh, in the mirror yeah. next to a yeah. carrier bag full of uh, I don't know crisps and and cheap wine or something. Basically says, yeah, I'm attractive and what? Yeah, but at no point. With- and I think that was the appeal of yeah. Debbie Harry because yeah, I mean because. But at no point with with I mean with somebody as startling as Debbie Harry, you would think that sort of over over the course of Blondie's kind of time, then um, there'd be a time when it starts fracturing and it becomes too focused on her or something, and the band start getting resentful. Maybe that did happen eventually, yeah. but it never felt like that. It always felt like they were together yeah. and that they were a band, and that, yes. and, and that she, she yeah. was in no way being backed by the boys. Um, she was yeah. part of it, absolutely sort of enmeshed within the music. Um, and yeah. I think I think Taylor's right in that this video, I think, gives us something that we don't get in a lot of Blondie videos. Because after a little while, Blondie videos get very much aware that Debbie is the centre. And, and they, they, mm. they I'm not saying they get airbrushed, but they just get a little softer. There's a grain to this yeah. video and a close-upness yeah. to this video that we don't really get again in Blondie videos. And it's just thrilling. It is like being on, on stage with them. And, it, and, it, and it's just yeah. really, really exciting. I, that definitely by a, a big, big way, the, the high point of this episode. Yeah, we do get old pin-up boy on the organ tastefully <laughs> acting <laughs> out the song title, literally complete with lolling tongues. That's Jimmy Destry, yeah. isn't it? I mean, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, I thought that was dead good when I when I was ten, <laughs> and I probably and I probably reenacted that when I was at home, and I'm sure lots of other kids did. <laughs> so the following week, hanging on the telephone, soared to number nine and would go as high as number five. The follow-up, Heart of Glass, would spend the entire month of February 1979 at number one, and they'd have three more chart toppers before they split up for the first time in 1982. Such a lot of good music coming up on tonight's Top of the Pops, and I'm delighted to say that we have Dean Friedman with us in the studio here tonight to play from his superb album, Well Well Said the Rocking Chair, the latest single release from it. This is called Lydia. Lydia keeps my toothbrush in her apartment And she never complains Hardly ever And then jokingly she says Kid points out that there's been loads of mint and skill music on this episode And then introduces Dean Friedman (laughs) Born in New Jersey in 1955 Dean Friedman first came to local prominence in the mid-70s When he sang the advertising jingle for the electrics chain Crazy Eddie's He had a near miss in the UK in the summer of 78 with Woman of Mine, but made it to number three the month before this episode with Lucky Stars, which is still in the charts at number 27. This is the hastily put out follow-up called Lydia, and it's currently at number 70. They're trying to give over the impression that there's an orchestra to the side as well. Did you see that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there is. It's the BBC Orchestra. 
Yeah. Is it? Fresh out of the bar. Because I could see the bloke waving the baton about, but I couldn't see any other... No, you can't see, you know, probably Jonathan Cohen on the piano or something. But no, no um, it, you, you it's can right, right at it? the very end. Right at the very end, you see a cello player soaring away. Yeah, right. <laughs> but it's like it's it's like if you've gone to all that bother, why not actually show these people? Well, well the focus is on Dean. This is a well, completely live performance. This is he <laughs> singing and playing live. BBC mm. Orchestra singing and playing live. Four pints gone. Uh, and yeah, and it 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 doesn't sound like the record. If you listen to the record, it's a lot no. smoother, and it's got yeah. that sort of boomy uh, late seventies reverb on it. Like that would, yeah, it's it, this sounds much more live. Uh, are you are you saying the record sounds better in any way? No, than this, this sounds better. <laughs> right, because yeah. Oh. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's one of those ones, isn't it? Who the fuck bought this? Apart from men mm. with partners called Lydia, I presume. Um, yeah, there but, he is. Yeah. There he is, looking like Colin Wellen's disappointing little brother. And, <laughs> that absolutely and... <laughs> reminded me of you. <laughs> Thank you, Neil. That's been bothering me all fucking week. There's all kinds of problems with this song. I mean, apart from the lyrics, um, you know, I'm well, sleeping yes. with I'm sleeping with a woman who thinks I'm a child. Yes. Then she's then she's a pederast, surely. But I mean, it's a horribly ungenerous uh, song and sentiment. I mean, it's kind of I'm a bastard. Can I crash at yours? And you know, um, maybe Shaggy tonight. It's like a Maggie mm. May type sentiment, but with none of the humanity, just mm. selfishness. Um, mm. So I found this very I'm- very difficult to like indeed. As, as Jeremy Carl would say, Dean's not stepping up to the mark here, is he? <laughs> no, he's not. But he's got that combination of twee, tweeness and kind of cleverness that I've mm. always found a bit repellent. It kind of ordains that you have to take it seriously. And that if you don't, mm. you're somehow immature, which is a word yeah. I was increasingly being called at that age. Um, <laughs> and, it, and it does this thing, you know, that if each syllable is populated with a new word that makes it literate songwriting. Right. Um, and the reaction of the audience is really mixed. Some people kind of finding it funny, but there's one <laughs> guy who's kind of like a Weller with a Wiggins before even Weller had a Wiggins, who is, right. who is staring really intently at Friedman like he's discovered the secret of true music or something. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's a horrible song. Horrible and song. that boy grew up to be Paul Weller in the 90s. <laughs> now, let me surprise you here. I, I like this record. Yay, good oh, luck. Yes. Oh, yes. But I like a lot of odd records. And if this wasn't quite as ridiculous, I don't think I'd like it as much. Mm. There's a a certain amount of distance in my... What it comes down to is that I've always been strangely fascinated by this specific subgenre of AOR, of mature or mature-seeming, curly-headed middle-class East Coast Jewish guys doing slightly quirky, emotional, clever piano ballads with these rambling conversation-with-yourself lyrics, Mm. um, often wearing the the Kid Jensen uh, outfit of shirt collars coming out from under a sweatshirt with sort of corduroys and sneakers, (laughs) uh, uh, you know... It's all all sounding a bit like the theme from a bittersweet American movie from 1980 about a 36-year-old divorcee in Manhattan. 
You know you're, I mean? you're talking about you're talking about mm. Christopher Cross, aren't you? Really, in a yeah, way, yeah, a bit you know of Christopher I mean? that Cross, kind of thing. yeah, yeah. A bit yeah. Of Andrew Gold, although he was Californian. Um, but it's yeah, I mean, this had yeah. already peaked. In fact, this genre had already peaked with um, Uptown yeah. Uptempo Woman by Randy Edelman, um, which <laughs> is a, a weirdly yes. great record if you can stomach it, and a memorable Top of the Pops appearance. Mm. Um, he mm. really does yes. look like something special. Oh, and I tell you, who else? Bruno from Fame, uh, I think, yes. was aspiring to the condition of being Dean Friedman. Um, and of course, Lydia keeps my toothbrush in her apartment. Is perhaps the quintessential opening line of this genre. Uh-huh. But I do like it um, because partly because, like a lot of adult males, I've been in this sort of situation and toyed with taking my stupid emotions as seriously as this not for some time but also because it brings back those early evenings on BBC Two in the days when I was young and wide open to any weird offshoot of culture and there was nothing else to do so I'd sit there and be enriched unrewardingly by Rhoda and uh, programmes about Programs yes. about educated neurotics living in brownstones, you know. It, yeah, it's yeah. A bit mm. like that. But what I don't like, and I think you may be with me on this at least, is the way he makes love to the camera. Mm. There's something really uncomfortably saucy about this, right? It's, uh, But, I mean, in a way, fair play, because you listen to this song and you look at this absurd... Fozzy bear motherfucker, is that it? <laughs> uh, like a, uh, a Greenwich Village Terry McDermott, and you think, how did he? How did he get a woman like Lydia? Right, because you assume that that Lydia is is quite yeah. something in the song. Mm. But you look at his his freaky, twinkling eyes and his naughty, wet-lipped little smile, uh, and you can see he's got game. <laughs> In his own weird, yeah. mm. rumpled, shrieking way, <laughs> um, it's, yeah. the whole thing is a slightly disturbing experience. But you know, I, I've had worse. Yeah, <laughs> Taylor, you um, you actually uh, on behalf of a you 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 kind of took one for the for the chart music team, didn't you, this week, and investigated the LP. Well, well, said the rocking chair, which Kid Jensen mentions. Yeah. Please. What Your Kid report Jensen described please. as amazing cover yeah, for a kickoff. What Kid Jensen described as his superb album. Well, well, said the rocking chair. Yeah. Yes, um, yeah, it is. The cover is quite something. Um, Donald Fagan once yes. boasted that Steely Dan had the two ugliest record covers of the seventies, <laughs> but I think he spoke too soon because this this kind <laughs> of uh, claymation. Uh, m- lots of Dean Friedman's faces everywhere. Sort of, it's like a bad trip morph. It's uh, mm, mm, really, yes. really yeah. unpleasant. It's essentially Dean Friedman standing by a rocking chair with his face on it. Uh, that's underneath uh, a cuckoo clock with his face on it. Uh, he's holding a mug with his face on it, and he's standing on a rug mm. with his face on it. We're, we're being asked to presume that that everything in Dean Friedman's house has Dean Friedman's yeah. face on it. And, you know, I'll wager that the toothbrush that uh, Lydia's got in her <laughs> bathroom uh, has Dean Friedman's face yeah, on it as well. the bristles are where his moustache would be. Yeah. <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> but yeah. no, I listened to it, and I listened to the all his sort of hits from this period and stuff. It's it's it is hard going. I've got to say that Lydia is his best one, which is. Yeah. Mm. I mean, mm. th- you get these lyrics like, um, like, what is it? Hang on, I wrote these down. Wait a minute. She <laughs> she wore a peasant. <laughs> she she wore a peasant blouse with nothing underneath. I said hi. She <gasps> said, "Yeah, I guess I am." It's it's oh a, yeah. It's a bit God. like that. <laughs> we got the munchies, and I made some nice. spaghetti. Yeah, I bet you fucking did. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah, that's two episodes of Rhoda <laughs> there, isn't it? The way he does those little thoughtful chuckles to himself at, at, on, at the end of certain mm. lines. That's what's so revolting about it, though. It's that it's that self-deprecation. It isn't real self-deprecation. It's it's self-deprecation, um. mindful of kind of yeah of how it looks and and you know showing yourself as a kind of. Uh, as, as a humorous person but actually kind of in a way without humor it's kind of it's not true self-deprecation mm, it, no he's de- he's delighted he's, with himself he's delighted with himself absolutely yeah. um, but he throws well he would be man he's shagging well, yeah, he whenever throws he wants this self-deprecation. to it, it, it reminds me lyrically um although although it's quite a dissimilar song you know the kind of um the pina colada song do you do you like pina coladas instead yeah. it's yes, that Holmes, kind of yeah. thing um, that kind of dating scene yeah. self-deprecation that, that I just find revolting. And you've got to ask yourself, what's uh, where's Lydia's mates in all this? Why haven't they said anything? You know, why hasn't anybody sat down and said, Lydia, go, you've been you've been played like a sucker, girlfriend. What is Lydia getting out of this relationship? I, I, I don't get it. A whole hunk of Dean. That's what she's getting out of it. <laughs> but yeah, it's the way it's the way he so. seems like. He chuckles as though he's simultaneously touched by the poignancy of his situation and tickled by yeah. the perspicacity with which he's just summed it up. And it's yeah, it, mm, and it yeah. does make him seem very untrustworthy. It does go with the lyrics, you know, Absolutely. like yeah. the, these uh, the key line being, um, "Sorry, I woke you. Do you feel like some company?" It's. Uh, <laughs> he's got it, it's the combination of yeah false se- false self-deprecation um the attempt to appear sensitive and this blatant horniness yeah. that he's projecting at the camera uh, yeah. maybe this is all performance art because yeah. it fits the song so beautifully but i don't think so mm. he is one of these mm. blokes who um can't just be a horny honest horny pig-like male and a responsible non-sexist human being at the same time he has to fold the former into the latter like a like a dirty mag in a copy of the guardian right um really those really (laughs) dubious blokes where it's like they think that unhappy or emotionally damaged women are easy meat or something you know what i mean it's sort of fundamental Mm. dishonesty Mm. yeah um and there really is a bit yeah. of that. But in the context of a 1970s AOR ballad, it's quite interesting and it sort of works. Yeah, and, and, and in its defence, you know, in 20 years' time after this, Dean Freeman would be singing the same song, but it would be 
oh, I've got a booty call on the down low. <laughs> yeah. He'd be, he'd be bragging on about it. At least he's, he's a, pretending to be a bit remorseful. He, he also sort of, he talks in the language. Like, I think he's directly called from kind of women's magazines in a way. There's a line where he's, he, mm. am I wrong? He, there's a line where he goes, you know, Lydia, sometimes I'm always talking about making conscious decisions. And it's all this kind of, not psychobabble, oh, but it's just, no. it's revolting. Yeah. It's kind of very much called from the kind of yeah. the problem pages of Cosmopolitan or something like that. There's a, there's a, you know, and even though he's laughing about it, ultimately what he's saying is, I'm a selfish cunt, um, you know. Yeah. But if you if you don't understand that, I've already told you I'm a selfish cunt. So Therefore, if you can't deal with that, you know, exactly, yeah. exactly, yeah. You you knew what you were signing up for, yeah. Lydia. Also, it's all it's all a little bit overwritten as well. Like when he says, um, he says, yeah. uh, you know, uh, what was it? I I I sleep with a woman who thinks I'm a child. And he goes, mm. uh, maybe I mm. am. That wouldn't surprise me much. I guess that much is true. That's too many nice. lines. That's too many yeah, lines yeah. for this. This that's him being American and everything's spilling out, isn't it? I it guess is. So. The, yeah. What he's saying is, well, the pubs have turned out. I can't be bothered to wait for a Chinese. I think I'll I'll go over and give Lydia one and see what's yeah. in the fridge. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, this is better than the record because it's he's playing live, he's singing live. The BBC orchestra are scraping away. Um, and it doesn't have that mm, yeah. kind of AOR sheen on it that the record's got. Um, mm. This this is better. Right. This is definitely better. Right, um, right. The only the only two things that let yeah. it down. First of all, something is a little bit out of tune. Um, I think it's actually his piano is just very slightly out of tune. Yeah. Uh, and the other thing is, as the song reaches its emotional climax, uh, there's a kid in the audience yes. doing rabbit ears <laughs> behind his mate's head. Yeah. The spell that Dean has cast over the audience is broken at the very end by some youth ruffling the hair of his mate in the manner of Stan Laurel and then doing the bunny ears thing. And his mate sternly reprimanded, Oh, you kids. This is why we can't have nice songs. Taylor, Taylor, I know yeah. you're a half man, half biscuit fan. Yeah. Um, and they did a song, didn't they? The yeah, Bastard the, Son of Dean Friedman. The Bastard Son of Dean Friedman. It's one of their really mm. early songs, so it's quite, it's quite simple. Yeah. It doesn't have the sort of uh, the sophistication of their later work, which is not 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 a joke, by the way. <laughs> no. Um, but it's but it, it's yeah, it's it's all right. It's about this kid who finds out that his dad's not his real dad, and he's the the uh, result of a liaison between his mum and Dean Friedman. Um, <laughs> but the thing is, he when he got wind of this, he I think a newspaper took him to one of their gigs. This is in like about 2000 or something, years mm-hmm. after the fact. Yeah, the right. Edinburgh Festival. So he yeah. got taken to one of their gigs and introduced to the band and they said, oh yeah, you know, whatever. But then he kept turning up and he turned up to a few <laughs> more of their gigs, like he's trying to latch on to them, like, as if he's going to, relaunch his career through Half Man Half Biscuit or something and you got this sense that you can imagine the band standing there with like fixed smiles like hello Dean <laughs> hello again Dean and he did actually do a yeah. song called the, A Baker's Tale which uh, which is an answer record to the Bastard Son of Dean Freeman where he discusses the origins of Nigel Blackmore yeah, it's, not that really good. it's a bit like uh, it's, a, it's like Fruity no. Bun from that makes it sound much yeah. better than it is I've got to say 
So the following week, Lydia soared up to number 31, but it dropped down to number 35 the week after, and he never troubled the charts again. However, he did come back to televisual prominence in the 80s when he did the incidental music for the central TV series Boone. Really? Yeah, but he, really? he didn't do the theme. Really? He didn't do the theme song though, did he? No, he it was Jim, Jim Diamond. Diamond. He yeah. didn't do Hi Ho Silver, but he did. You know, Rocky gets off motorbike and goes into <laughs> garage. from Dean Friedman. You know, it's always nice when a record that doesn't fit into an exact groove or form gets into the chart, and that's why I'm particularly happy to see the street band in the charts this week with a former record of the week of mine called Toast. I'd like to tell you a story about when I was a very young boy. I must have been three or four months old at the time, and I didn't know what I wanted, but if I did, I wouldn't have been able to tell anybody because all I could do was gurgle. So I sat there in my eye chair, thinking one day, looking at my tray, and thinking what I'd give for a meal on there. So I started looking around the kitchen to see what I could have. I was rubbing my eggy soldier in my head, trying to think. And then I looked over in the corner, and there's a yellow and white bread bin with its mouth open, just staring at me like I saw bread in there. I thought, I'll have toast. A little piece of toast. Kid points out how nice it is when something mental gets in the charts and metaphorically buffs his critical fingernails on his lapel as he introduces this song that was a previous record of the week, Toast by Street Band. Formed earlier this year, Street Band were a pop rock band fronted by an 18-year-old Paul Young and produced by Chaz Jankel. Ian Jury's guitarist. This song came together during a sound check before a pub gig with Young making up lyrics on the spot and Jankel suggesting that it would make a suitable B-side for their debut single, Hold On. When the record was released in September of this year, however, Toast was picked up on and played to death by Kenny Everett on Capital Radio. So the single was recalled, the sides were switched and it entered the charts and it's up this week from number 29 to number 25. What do we say about this then, chaps? I, I remember loving this song. Oh, um, fuck it. I it, love really this song to it. death. And, it, and, and the reason being, it just, uh, it seems a strange thing to, to ascribe to this record, but it, it broke the pop rule that, that was fixed in my head as a child, that pop music was about relationships and pop music was about mm. love and things like that, into yeah. writing about everyday stuff. And, and it, it did it. In, it. You know, I'd heard comedy records before, but nothing yeah. that was quite as understandable as this because i love toast of course just yeah. like everyone loves toast although god yeah. the stuff stuff we used to have then i remember asking my dad to make me in fact i used to regularly have sugar sandwiches just two slices of white bread with a bit of sugar <laughs> sprinkled on top yeah um, and and just, just you know we used to eat terribly about them but yeah i mean toast was part of all of our lives and it was really a song about yeah. it's a song about making do and being happy with what you've yeah. got to a certain extent um yeah uh, I didn't know until just, you know, recently that Chaz Janka was involved. And uh, as soon as I found mm. that out, it kind of makes a weird sense. I would not say, as some other people have had, uh, have had, that this is the first hip-hop record or whatever, as far as I'm no, concerned. No, no, hip-hop, no, no. Hip-hop, yes, it needs talking, but it, it also Wait, needs... Wait, who said that? 
I've read it online. I've read it online a few times. That, that I mean, it, it wouldn't even on the internet. Taylor. It wouldn't even be the first rap record on those criteria. But I mean, surely the criteria for first rap record is yes, it has to contain spoken poetry, but it has to crucially contain beats made mm. by a DJ. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. this isn't quite that. Otherwise, you might as well say Crosstown Traffic's the first hip hop record. But yeah. um, but but I mean, with 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 Chas Jankel involved, it does. I'm not saying that had a obviously it had an influence in getting it recorded. But it does have that, you know, Ian Jewelry, London-based charm to it. Um, mm. A lot less abrasive than Ian Jewelry, obviously. So I, I remember loving this, and I still love it. Um, yeah, me too. I, I just love the, 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 the kind... I mean, it's something we have all identified with, with in all kinds of ways. And crucially, when there is fuck all else in the house and you've got nothing else, toast gets you through. And I think yeah. that's what this song is about. I really like this. I always have and always will, I think. For health reasons, I can no longer eat starchy carbs. So there's something really depressing oh. for me about this record. It, but it is a oh, but it is a genuinely weird record. Uh, not 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 because it's surreal or disturbing. Uh, well, apart from the close-ups in this clip of the hideous <laughs> band members cramming their vile faces with the titular <laughs> snack mm. in that sitcom kitchen. <laughs> yes. Unusually for Top of the Pops, they're actually using a set as well. Like, a, mm. uh, looks like it's from a sitcom or something of a, a kitchen. I thought it was Trisha Yates's mum's kitchen in Grange Hill or something like that. It's got yeah, that. It could be. It's got that feel to it. I thought it was Citizen Smith. Yeah, it could be. It could be anything. Mm. But it's also a completely straight record in the sense that there's not really any imagination in it. It's just <laughs> people being silly. Without mm. any particular humour um, or any actual jokes, and there's always something a bit disturbing about stuff that's presented as humour and takes on the shape of humour, but doesn't really have any humour in it. The same <laughs> way as as uh, mannequins and faceless dummies disturb people <laughs> because they look almost human but not quite. Like what? Why? Why the policeman like evening all at the beginning? Uh, why the conviction that toast, one of the least amusing substances in existence, is somehow intrinsically funny? And why present this as a story about a newborn with a craving for hard, sharp food? Um, well, yes. And also, the standard of toast making in this clip is oh, it's is appalling, isn't it? Par, yeah, I mean, for a start, it's all made with mother's pride or some some putty like seventies white bread, and yeah. every slice is burnt black in the middle, <laughs> yes. and is yeah. still bread around the outside. It's like a sort of yeah. a culinary bouquet effect. It's like a, a put a blowtorch to it, or something. Yeah, it's awful. Also, the bloke in, who looks fifty in the chef's hat gets the mm. grill pan out from under the grill with his bare yeah. hands, which rather yeah. gives the game away yeah, yeah. that this is not an authentic <laughs> breakfast scene. Um, <sighs> yeah, and that also that that slightly padded blue semi-shiny zip-up jacket with the double white hoop that the mm. grotesque uh, permed cousin Kevin bloke is wearing in the clip. Yes. They, they were really big at our school. Slightly yeah. hipper than Snorkel Parker. But the thing about street bandies they're hard to dislike because although yeah. Paul Young at this point is doing that school of of Cockney or Mockney Jack the Lad charm or would be charm like Dennis Waterman and Nicholas Ball and I guess David Essex is the eternal 
ruler of mm-hmm. this domain. Um, they're sort of, you know, they're quite likable. They, they've definitely been in the bar. You know yeah. what I mean? Mm. With the BBC Orchestra. <laughs> Maybe but, but, sneaked out, tinkered with Dean Friedman's piano. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, we know that they're already doomed, don't we? You know, they're this tasteful rock, jazz funk band. And yeah. uh, they're, they're bringing out a song about toast. There's no coming back from this, is there? <laughs> it's true, yeah. There's no coming back for Paul Young and his Tucker Jenkins hairstyle. Yeah, it's a real soft lads do, isn't it? It's uh, mm. for all his sort of uh, mockney the way he's coming. Up, yeah, no, he's even. Yeah. Although it is nice to see him wearing a poppy. I noticed yes. he's the only person on this November top of the pops who's uh, who's showing his respect for the fallen. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, to me, the this song to me is is as punk as anything else that's been on. That we've had. Bands like the Buzzcocks and Blonde, they're singing love songs. Whereas, you know, when I was ten, that that was toast was the only thing I was allowed to make in the kitchen. Mm. Uh, my <laughs> mum would have gone mental if I'd have tried anything else. And of course, the other thing we need to we need to bring here this is this is a song from a time when having chocolate on bread was considered strange. Mm. Yeah, you know, Paul really. Young, Paul Young has, has put the idea of Nutella into someone's head there, hasn't it? He? he has slightly. I mean, simultaneous actually. If you uh, the Starsky and Hutch annual from this year, nineteen seventy eight, mm. had a brilliant bit in the middle of it. Um, it was actually a story called "You Are What You Eat," and it's Starsky and Hutch sat in a diner, chatting with each other, and then it goes into their favourite recipes. And uh, right. I think one of Starsky's, which always stuck in my head because the picture just blew my mind was um, chocolate pancakes, which was pancakes with chocolate in between them. That Jesus. Was, that fucked my head up at that oh, age. Oh, that America, it, it was like hearing, you know, that old thing about Americans having steaks for breakfast and stuff like that. It was yeah. mind-blowing that they didn't just have, you know, a bit of lemon and sugar. So, um, no. yeah. the, the, chocolate the thing pancakes is... or crepes, as they're really known. <laughs> I mean, even Shawadi Wadi had cottoned onto this. That was, uh, they put them in the title of their new album. But I think, also, I think also in 78, in 78, especially as children, I mean, children are basically hungry a lot of the time. They're yeah. constantly thinking about food. <laughs> so, so hearing, it is actually quite, and I'm not licking my lips saying this, but it is quite tasty the way he talks about all mm. the different types of bread and things like yeah. that. It, it makes you a bit hungry. It makes you a bit peckish. It's effective. Well, uh, imagine, imagine if he did this song nowadays, how... Uh, you'd have to have another extra two minutes on the song for him to list all the bread you can get nowadays. Mm-hmm. You know, gluten-free sourdough and chia batter. Yeah, it's uh, simpler times. The best thing of all is when uh, Kid Jensen links out of this and his quip is, I'm yes. sure they'll be making a lot of bread out of that one. Yeah, Which, to me, is more than just a bad joke. It's... Um, for a start, his delivery is so poor that it gets completely lost <laughs> under the applause. Like the applause from people who aren't even in the same room as Kid Jensen. So mm, yeah. it's been edited together really badly. Um, yeah, I've I, I got a feeling a producer's probably told him to say that because it would go down really well. Yeah, what's amazing about it is that it goes beyond being a bad joke uh, in that it's as wrong as you can possibly get, right? In a way that it's like... A, on a fascinating philosophical level, right? Making bread out of toast is beyond <laughs> any human being. It's almost like a, a gnomic uh, instruction from a Zen master, right? Like for the, for the next seven years, make bread out of toast 
unsplit an atom. Uh, so the following week, Toast jumped up seven places to number 18, its highest position. It would be the only bit of chart action they'd ever get, and the band split up, with half of them, including Paul Young, going on to form the Q-Tips. They got their fingers burned, didn't they? I can't think about it anymore. I've got to go and have some. Yeah, I must admit, I'm getting a bit brown off standing here as well. I'll take that off. Should we go and have some toast? Let's go. Okay, then. See ya. Night all. I'm sure they'll be making a lot of bread out of that one. That's Street Band and Toast. Right. Uh, lucky for some, particularly for Queen, the number 13, because they've been there for the second week now with their double A-sided single, Bicycle Race, and this, Fat Bottom Girls. Oh, you gonna take me home tonight? Oh, down beside that red firelight? Oh, you gonna let it all hang out? Fat Bottom Girls, you make the rockin' world go claims that number 13 must be looking for Queen as they're there for the second week. No kid, that means the record isn't shifting enough units. It's Fat Bottom Girls. Formed in London in 1970, Queen first entered the UK charts in March of 1974 when Seven Seas of Rye got to number 10. They went on a tear of 10 more chart hits in a row, including a nine-week run at number one with Bohemian Rhapsody. This is a double-A side with Bicycle Race, and the first release is from their seventh LP, Jazz, which came out a week ago. It's the follow-up to Spread Your Wings, which only got to number 34 in March of this year, and it's currently stuck at number 13. Seeing as the band are playing Madison Square Garden on the Jazz Tour tonight, and the video for Bicycle Race has got loads of naked women in it, we get the video for Fat Bottom Girls instead. Now, chaps, simple question. Fat Bottom Girls or Bicycle Race, where do you stand on that fault line? Bicycle race. A song that I've had hour-long conversations about. I think. Fat Bottom Girls, oh, I think God. I prefer. But, I mean, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's... Prefer is perhaps too strong, because when it comes to Queen, I find it, I find it difficult to love them. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I find it difficult to love them full stop. Um, the, the Queen are one of those bands where the comprising elements of it, I can't disagree with any of it, and I should love them, and I feel like I should love them. But there's just something that doesn't quite click with me. Um, something clinical, something not warm, something sort of admirable, but not really moving in a sense. For them, with them, I love the singles. And I, and I know it's the old cliche, best Beatles album is the best of the Beatles. With Queen, mm. I genuinely do think, you, you know that Hits album that came out about 81, I think, uh, where the latest thing on it was Another One Bites the Dust. I love that album, I love those singles, but I've never bothered, or I've, I've never been that entertained by the albums at all. And I always felt there was just not enough space in their music. It was so florid and full and ripe, and just a big sort of demonstration of their astonishing accomplishment as musicians. I just found it really difficult to like them. And beyond that, for a couple of reasons they used to annoy me at that time. For starters, whenever they were on top of the pops, my mum would say, as soon as she saw him, um, he's gay. And of course he was, but I didn't think she had the fucking right to say that just based on his appearance. So that would always cause an argument. My wife actually has completely different memories in that her mum always used to say, oh, look at that body. 
Um, and, mm. uh, and you know, it used to frustrate her that um, she was barking up the wrong tree to a certain extent. I also wish, I know people have said in the past that kind of they almost wish Freddie would have outed himself a bit sooner, maybe. And perhaps, mm. you know, to most people, maybe I was just being dim. I don't think most people were aware in 78 that Freddie no. was gay at all. And, and no. I kind of wish he'd outed himself on that score. But actually beyond that... Like I said earlier, I moved out from an old people's home to a sort of suburban estate at that point. And I was encountering, you know, a fair bit of racism on the street and stuff. Uh, there was a lot yeah. of anger. And this was, like you say, the kind of, um, you know, winter discontent and stuff. And uh, people getting blamed for things. And I kind mm. of, I know he couldn't have done this. And perhaps, you know, he did, he wasn't ashamed of his background. But I wish Freddie would have announced himself, I don't know, as Asian. Do you know what I mean? Uh, he wasn't yes. strictly yet, but I really do wish he had. We had nobody up there. You know, mm. I was well aware by 78 that black kids, like white kids, had no problem taking the piss out of Asian kids because we were kind of the whipping boy almost of both groups. And we had nobody yeah. on top of the pops. Or who did we have on telly? We had Spike Milligan blacked up in Korean chips. And we had yeah. the guys on Mind Your Language. We needed yeah. somebody up there. I'm not saying that was his job. And I'm sure, you yeah. know, may, I, I don't know whether he was told, you know, don't emphasise that aspect of your past or your roots. But uh, man, I wish he'd just say that. If we could have had one pop star who was cool in a way, um, where we could say, yeah, he's yeah. Asian, he's one of us, that would have made a world of difference. So maybe it's just my residual resentment about that, but I've never really warmed mm. to Queen. You're forgetting Michael Bates. He got uh, screamed up to <laughs> yes. shut up by Windsor Davis every week. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah. I mean, it would have just been nice, I think. But I mean... Given the given the racial yeah. politics at the time, that wasn't his job to do that. But it would have no. been it would have been it would have made a difference, I think, a little bit. Yeah, because I think people were quite a lot of people were quite shocked when that was revealed. The gayness or the Asianness? The Asianness. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, I just kind of assumed, as an Asian kid at the time, obviously, I just assumed he was white. I just thought he was another big mm. white rock star. If I'd yeah. have known that, or if it had been accentuated in any way. It would have made such a such a big difference, I think. Yeah, yeah. But Taylor, the song, uh, he likes big butts and he cannot lie. <laughs> yeah, I know that Freddie didn't write the words to this one, but I think it's a nah. song that only a gay man could get away with singing, really. <laughs> um, for a start, there's the suggestion of him being fiddled with by an overweight nanny mm. when he was in a nursery. This is delivered in a wholly positive, humorous way. Yeah. Um, uh, and then it goes on to develop this theme, which many heterosexual men will recognise and understand, but few would want to discuss openly, that deep inside us is this kind of Jack Regan who can't be asked with a sexual partner having any concerns for poise or propi propriety and just want someone who doesn't give a fuck and goes for it. But the association of that with fat-bottomed girls is slightly uncomfortable. Mm. Uh, although it must have delighted Anita Dobson when she <laughs> finally married the, uh, the author of those words. But at the same time, that sort of... Uh, that weird sound to these records is probably their best feature because mm. Um, mm. it is strange... And it's complemented by the weird way that in Queen videos around this time, they were all filmed uh, 
in sort of close up from weird angles with a bit of shade yeah. on the camera and it's all a bit disorientating and slightly upsetting when you're young but I think now it's it's kind of right for a band that are all about dumb sensation and have nothing to say in any way at all mm. I don't know I, yeah I've never really warmed to Queen although with all the shit that they dumped on the public in the last 10 or 15 years of their career it's easy to forget that at one point they weren't bad um, I mean where are they in 1978 well they're just about to sort of they're just in the process of developing from not bad to really fucking awful Bicycle Race is their last one of theirs that I can stomach really they're getting bigger right. and bigger. They're touring with Finn Lizzy, I think, that year in America. And they're, ju- they're just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, not quite a stadium rock band yet, but, but very soon um, there'll be a stadium. Well, they're playing Madison Square, Square well, Garden yeah. tonight. <laughs> that's a pretty big game. <laughs> I imagine that's probably with Finn Lizzy, actually, um, which is a kind of a, a sort of a tour of rivals in a sense. But certainly it happened mm. for one of those bands and it didn't yeah. quite happen as big for the other one. The, th- the thing about the really early Queen stuff is that what it sounds like is uh, Led Zeppelin with a bubblegum centre. It's mm. uh, completely shallow, and uh, it, they're like they're a pop group playing hard rock, if you know mm. what I mean, or a mm. hard rock group playing pop, whichever way around you want to you want to put it. Which is why they were never taken seriously. I mean, you know how now Queen are always the subject of those witless memes about how music isn't as good as it yeah. used to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yes. it always says things like, you know, there's like a Beyonce record or something. It's like, this this record, as, as if it's self-evidently shit, you know. Yeah. This record mm. needed 12 writers and six producers. Uh. Uh, Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen, one writer, Freddie Mercury. And what <laughs> these people don't understand is that at the time, they were not taken seriously by critics. They were seen as a complete no. joke um, for these reasons. They were uh, partly because their music was basically bubblegum pop delivered as hard rock, uh, also because they had a singer who was somewhat less than manly. And they didn't take themselves remotely seriously. They didn't take anything seriously, including themselves. Mm. Um, and then you add in uh, the conspicuous consumption. Um, that they were really into at the time. This was almost like a perfect storm for 1970s rock critics. They hated mm. Queen. They hated yeah, they by did. this yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. Um, Is this man a prat? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, he sort of was, but that was kind of the point. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. it's interesting to think when, pe- when it dawned on people that Freddie Mercury was gay because it was before he died, certainly, but I don't know mm. exactly when it would have been. I know that in the mid-'80s, a mate of mine got slammed up against a wall by one of the hard kids at my school because this hard kid was into Queen, and my mate said to him, hang on, you hate gays, why do you like Queen? <laughs> and he said, what do you mean? And he said, well, Freddie Mercury's gay. Got slammed up against a wall, and the Whoa. kid said, don't you ever say that about Freddy ever again. Wow, wow. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, what more, other than coming out, what more could he have done? He grew a moustache, 
pranced around the stage wiggling his ass and called his band Queen. It's like there's a mm. even with a sort of even to the non-functioning gaydar of mainstream <laughs> 1970s culture. I found the, see, the thing is I found Freddie a fascinating voice and a kind of a, a fascinating songwriter in a sense. I wouldn't say when he went solo, but when he detached himself from the band format, something like Living on My Own, you know that song? Living yeah. on My Own, which is one of his solo ones, and it's completely just like a high-energy disco record. I think it's a fantastic record, and it, and it kind of gets close to expressing the true him, in a sense. Um, mm. But it, it's it's odd, isn't it? I, th- I think his, his homosexuality only really became apparent to most people, and I don't mean people in the know, I mean just us as pop listeners out there, really late on in his career and, and kind of mm. it wasn't even that I want to break free video where he's in a dress I don't even think no. then we all thought oh you know I don't think the penny dropped he had been part of such a sort of thrustingly heterosexual set of songs if you like with Queen mm. that, that I didn't make that association maybe I was just being dim and people like my mum who seem to know from about 1976 onwards that he was gay uh, with the majority, but I, yeah. I just remember, I just remember it not really, not really being part of their shtick, and not really, you know, that looking back, it's staggering that nobody mentioned this because the yeah. songs, the sound, the lyrics, everything about them is so, yeah, especially in Freddie's performances, is so camp. But yeah, mm. it just, it just never seemingly occurred, basically because it was surrounded by, you know, the the man lion that is Brian May. And, um, mm. you know, yeah. uh, and the masculinity of the rest of it. By the way, the best Brian May moment, I think, in his entire career is that moment in that song that he did with Anita Dobson, where um, yes. in the video where Anita throws her head back and it, tra- it transmogrifies into Brian May throwing yes. his head back. It's a great moment yes. in that video. But, you know, you, you say he's gay and all this kind of stuff, but he's... He's, he's singing a song about a woman with a fat arse. He can't be gay. <laughs> yeah, I think that was... He likes some with a bit of meat on him, doesn't he? But, I mean, it, it's, of course, revealing that he had to keep the lid on that so tight. Um, yeah. Because even a glimmer of it would have completely fucked up the whole thing, would have completely yeah. wrecked Queen's progress. So, yeah, a bit of a damning indictment. I think what it is... Yeah, he's standing next to Brian May, who, uh, aside from anything else, is obviously obsessed with playing the guitar very well. <laughs> and and instrumental uh, grandstanding is not a quality associated with gayness in the mm. 1970s, right? Yeah, Brian yeah. May's standing there looking like the back of the old one-pound note, playing this guitar <laughs> that, that he made out of his, his... Didn't he make his guitar out of his dad's fireplace? Or something? Yeah, yes. what is it? yeah. Right. And it, yeah, playing it with a throbbly bit or whatever the fuck it was. <laughs> it's like this is this is that level of um, of dedication and seriousness and earnestness is mm-hmm. uh, it, it's enough of a counterpoint to Freddie that that um, that I think it, 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 it acted as a as a beard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but the, uh, one thing I will say in their defence and, and in Brad May's defences. The textures he gives his guitar playing through those classic Runner Queen singles, they're just gorgeous. The solos mm. that he puts on stuff. I love the sounds he gets out of that guitar. Um, but mm. like you say, it's accompanied by this this earnestness. If Queen could have just been that guitar solo in Killer Queen, in fact, if they could have just been Killer Queen, I'd probably be a lot, um, a lot more um, fond of them. But they insisted on making long and dreary albums. It's kind of like my slightly heretical and probably utterly wrong thought about Led Zeppelin. I love Led Zeppelin, don't get me wrong. But imagine if they 
they've been a band who released one seven-inch single, which had Immigrant Song on one side and Black Dog on the other, and then had died in a van accident or something. They'd be one <laughs> of the true greats. <laughs> so the following week, Fat Bottom Girls slash Bicycle Race nudged up two places to number 11, its highest position. The follow-up, Don't Stop Me Now, would get to number 9 in March of 1979, and the follow-up to that, a live version of Love of My Life, would only get to number 63. But they would finish the 70s with a number 2 hit, Crazy Little Thing Called Love, and go right the way through the 80s. Get on your bikes and ride! Ever since their big hit record, It's Only Make-Believe, things have really taken off for Child in a very big way. And I have a feeling this next single is about to do the same for them, called Still the One. Someday we will be together, you just carry on. They took me away from you, don't know for how long. Kid, sat at a white piano, introduces the next act, Child with Still the One. Formed in Wakefield in 1972, Child were pitched as a teeny bop covers band who did the circuit of kids' TV shows such as Checkers Plays Pop, Get It Together and The Basil Brush Show. In May of 1978, they got to number 38 with a cover of When You Walk in the Room and then got to number 10 with a cover of It's Only Make Believe in September. This is the follow-up and it's just about to be released. Now, I didn't really go too deep on the research of this because I didn't want to type in child pictures <laughs> and the like in, in into Google. By the hairstyles, they should have been called Gordon McQueen and the Tilsleys. <laughs> <laughs> Not a hit at all, and no wonder. It's a fucking awful song, isn't it? It's, um, it is, it's yes. very, very dull. And if you need to rely on... Actually, Conway Twitties, it's only make-believe, is, is a great song, I think. It's got it's got a real mm. build to it. So if, you, but if you're relying on that to get your hit, um, and you've got nothing else in the trunk, as it were, and I think this is what's getting revealed here, they have nothing else. They yeah. may well, as my sole bit of internet, carefully done internet research, um, revealed they may well have been voted the second most popular band by Fab 208 magazine that year. Um, apparently yeah. a teen bot magazine I was not aware of. Um, that mm. might be the case, but I suspect it's because of their omnipresence on the TV shows that you mentioned earlier. Um, yeah. That just, yeah, I wonder who was number one there. It would have been. Probably Flintlock or someone like that. Hmm. Or, but with a magazine like Fab 208, uh, it might have something to do with makes the money sign. <laughs> Perhaps so, but yeah, nothing really memorable about this at all. This could be the actual record for which the phrase was invented. <laughs> I mean, what the fuck is it? It's, uh, I mean, it's like a yeah. passing cloud. It's like, there's, they're like a grown-up flintlock or... Uh, Sophisticated yes. Bay City Rollers. And, I mean... It, yeah. And nobody wants a sophisticated Bay yeah. City Rollers, do they? It's, basically, it's two ugly guys and uh, identical twin David Van Days. Um, they're not... I mean... And they're, what's depressing is that they're... First of all, this record sounds like it's actively trying to avoid doing anything interesting. 
in case that made it less commercial. Uh, there are all these little avenues, little interesting ways it could have gone, and it 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 doggedly sticks to a straight course. Um, and what's also depressing is that they're playing this uh, this diaphanous soft pop on Les Paul Black Beauties, which mm. are like both guitarists have got a Les Paul Black Beauty, which is uh, no, no doubt bought with the first real money they ever got from the record company and pro- possibly the last. But it's a rock guitar; it's a pure hard rock guitar, um, and it's although it's not audible on the record, it's that. It's as if they're trying to send out signals, right? It's as if it's mm. like they're uh, blinking SOS in Morse code with their eyes as they tell the camera their captors are treating them well. Um, <laughs> it's like, we're not. This isn't really us. This isn't really us. But it's a prison of their own making, and mm. their love of money is their only jailer. Um, <laughs> or despite the fact that any hard rock record that these saps made would without a doubt be even worse than this hmm. because at least this is uh, inoffensive you know? i mean what's the point of this in 1978 who 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 needs this i mean because the teenage girls all the you know whoever you know that they're they're mooning over john travolta um and no one else is going to be interested in it are they surely i mean we've got Nobody we've got smoke yeah we don't need we don't need this. Nobody needs this, and crucially, Top of the Pops doesn't need this. No, really, and it's doesn't. a real dead. It's a dead spot in the show. Yeah. It's a total fucking dead spot. Yeah. And I know it, it, it behoves any of us to look at the charts for that week and think, "Oh, that should have been it." Yeah. But fucking hell, I don't know. Give X-ray specs a bell or something yes. and get them down. Yeah. You know, anything but this dreck. I love how the blonde boy dolls are twins, right? Mm. They're, and they're still dressed identically. At the age of twenty or whatever, that must yeah. have really pleased them. Yeah, um, it's yeah. It and also the whole band look unnervingly fit, like physically fit mm. for mm. nineteen seventy eight. Right, nobody did exercise in nineteen seventy eight, or no. or exercises mm. as it was called then, mm. um, <laughs> except for some black guys and some gay men. Right? Yeah. Like these kind of spots from Wakefield, nobody did any fucking exercise. You were just skinny until you were thirty, and then fat afterwards. Yes. That that was and it. You need, and you need to be skinny to carry off, you know, the Black Les Paul thing. You need yeah. to be kind of, you know, bent in half to a certain extent and a bit skinny and etiolated. They're not. They're just big blokes with big guitars, and it's incredibly dull. Mm. Yeah, what this reminds me of is a, a 90s boy band record. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's got yeah. that yeah. feel about yeah. it, like it should be a bit better than it is, but, oh, this will do, you know. Mm. But at, at the time, it wouldn't do, because this was yeah, never a hit. it never got it? into the charts, and they'd have one more hit in May of 1979 with Only You and You Alone, which got to number 33. But after it got slagged off on jukebox jury, they faded from view. They were one of the bands who were in the background, you know, behind the waiting in the wings to come out. Oh right, yeah, yeah, uh, and uh, yeah. Proto Glenn Medeiros. David Wilkie was very unimpressed uh, by the song, what? and yeah, they had to come out. Yeah, and when Dave, David Wilkie's just cussed your fucking band down, you might as well just pack it up. <laughs> totally. Well, 
I just know they'll be celebrating in Van Leary County, Dublin tonight because their favourite wayward sons have made it to the top. Quite an achievement for the Boomtown Rats. This week, number one with Rat Trap. as a five-man band called Nightlife Thugs in 1975, they invited Bob Geldof, a local lad who had just come back from Canada where he'd worked as a music journalist and kids' TV presenter, to manage the band. He turned them down but offered to be their lead singer as long as they changed their name to the Boomtown Rats. After relocating in London in 1976, they signed with Enzyme Records a year later and immediately scored four top 20 hits on the bounce. This song, the follow-up to Like Clockwork, which got to number six in July of this year, has knocked Summer Nights by John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John off the number one slot after seven weeks. And the band are back in the top of the pop studio to rub it in and, in my mind perform one of the iconic images of Top of the Pops. Well, they start the performance by, uh, well, covering their faces, actually, with a lot of posters from pop magazines of John Travolta, yes. um, who's obviously, you know, uh, man of the moment. And, and they start the performance by tearing these things Well, by apart. yawning first. Oh, yeah. And then tearing them up. And the front row just punches the air. Did you see that? Applaud. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. People actually applauding this. It's like, to my mind, this is on a par with the Berlin Wall coming down. Because bear in mind, <laughs> I'm, I'm 10 years old, and up until this point, it was like, oh, well, it's all music. You know, you, mm. you like what you like what you like, and you don't have to take any decisions. Um, but... This was like the, the, the line in the sand for me and a lot of people at my school, you know, because we were into Greece, but we were also into, you know, all the new wave stuff. Up until now, you know, you never got like little Jimmy Osmond saying, oh, well, David Cassidy's a cunt. Uh, don't buy his records. <laughs> you know, everybody everybody seemed to like each other and get on with each other because you'd see them on top of the pop. So they're, obviously they're all mates mm. and everything. But the idea that, you know, someone in a band could, you know, slag down someone from another band or, or another singer or whatever and, you know, force you to decide which side you were on. That was that was a huge deal at my school. The trouble is that the, uh, the implication is that, yeah, man, Travolta is just plastic mm. and fake compared to the ugly posturing and embarrassingly empty self-regard of the boomtown rats now i mean <laughs> i admit that i would have thought that was hilarious at the time but yeah and it was. as soon as this fucking dreary record began i'd be longing for yet another round of wella 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 huh. <laughs> with, confronted with this fucking the ba robertson for even bigger wankers <laughs> right the, the sheer fucking effrontery of this clown to think he can do these horrible impressions of Thin Lizzy and Bruce Springsteen mm. and mm -hmm. still strut around as though he was making some kind of contribution in his, in his fucking green trousers with his <laughs> horrible band with that idiot in his pyjamas, you know what I mean? 
Although I, I like the, uh, the guitarist on the, the right-hand side. He looks like he works for the Bulgarian secret police. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, generally, it's like, I mean, this fucking hell. It's almost physically painful to listen to. So I mean, you don't, there's a you reason don't like why, it then, Taylor? No. I mean, there's a reason why uh, two or three years after having their number one hits... The Boomtown Rats had been completely abandoned. You know, mm. they were cold as yesterday's mashed potatoes and all these copies of the fine art of surfacing was stowed in the loft, you know. All the My Guy centre spreads went to landfill. <laughs> and and whatever their obvious sense of superiority, this is a completely empty record with no value. And nothing the Boomtown Rats ever did was any use to anybody anywhere and not only was it not useful it wasn't beautiful either um hmm. and yeah they can get fucked so what did this I, get I, to number one then <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I, I could understand by the way Al. i totally understand your excitement at that moment yeah um because that is i think you're right something not seen in Top of the Pops before, and there is that notion that it's all one big happy family of music, and, you know, seeing that would have been shocking, but but it's kind of, watching it now, it just seems rich, him tearing up those John Revolting Olivia Neutron bomb images, mm. but then basically just playing a, an American song in a really mm. American way. Mm. It is so sub-Springsteen, and like so much of Springsteen's work, it goes on too fucking long. Yeah. Like Mondays, like I Don't Like Mondays does later on. It goes on mm. probably the only Geldof... I was going to say I ever want to hear again. I don't really want to hear it again. I like the odd little touch that Mutt Lang's production puts on it, the odd little zingy guitar line. I like some of the rhythms in it, but... But yeah, to, to decry kind of um, American pop and then just make really dull sounding American rock, mm. um, I, I don't see it as a victory as such. Um, and also as a scab for miming the saxophone part and a candle yes. and that sort of stuff <laughs> because the musicians, because the musicians union forbade him from playing saxophone. That's right, but yes. Yeah. But, but yeah, I know it got to number one and so did, you know, they had a lot of hits, but look at the audience um, during this performance. They're barely moving. Mm. They're, 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 they're barely moving at all. I, I think we're just meant to be, uh, as ever with Geldof, just impressed, I guess. Um, but it, it, sitting around listening to this for pleasure, I don't think is something I would ever, ever do. Mm. Also, he's the, I mean, the only man ever to make me contemplate the quiet dignity of Midge Ewer, right? Because, <laughs> if we, like, we all remember this, right? At Live Aid, when... He first of all, he actually put the Boomtown Rats on the bill as though they were pop mm. stars, mm. As, if, as if they were pop stars in 1985. Like he had the lack of shame and the lack of self-awareness to do that, and then stop the music halfway through. I don't like Mondays on the line. Yes. The lesson today is how to die, and stand yeah. there in silence with his oh, with his God, fist yeah. in the air, like he's given yes. a fucking. No. <laughs> Black Power Salute, stage centre, um, demanding and then milking a fucking standing ovation and using mm. the word die in direct reference to the actual death of real human yeah. beings starving to death in the late 20th century as a trigger for his applause. Mm. 
like he actually did that. This fucking yes. posturing man-child, right? This fucking dismal fucking has-been pub rocker actually did that and rode that wave of fucking sycophancy. It's one of the most revolting things I've ever seen in my fucking life. <laughs> Sorry, I'm getting, I'm yeah. actually getting genuinely a bit angrier. I'm going to stop before. <laughs> yes, you, yeah, please do. Uh, uh, you, you know that when the the Live Aid single came back, you know, forty years on or whatever, um, that they did a couple of years ago. I'll never forget his busy tweeting action, naming and shaming pop stars who hadn't returned his calls, mm. and and you know, setting himself up as somebody so concerned, and and yet modern pop stars seemingly weren't. I I, I thought that was bullying and, and horrible of him um so I've, I've long had my doubts about Geldof luckily he's not he you know some of these people you can kind of look back and say I like that track like that track never really a fan of the rats at all because when you listen to something like I don't like Mondays it's simply quite a pompous almost proggy record mm. um and yet it seems to be what part of the new wave supposedly but yeah. really it's a horribly too long um you know sanctimonious record and and i find it, it, it he's one of the least easy to to like pop stars ever i think mm. i had to review but, uh, a cd that came out about 10 or 15 years ago of um they did a series of cds of where pop stars chose records that had been their biggest influences right um and i had to review the one that was him and First of all, what was hilarious was that he had all these records on it, like Max Romeo and uh, uh, Roxy, <laughs> Roxy Music and stuff. Like, because of course you can really hear the influence of that on Bob Dylan's <laughs> music. And then, and he also he had uh, Candy Says by the Velvet Underground. And on his sleeve notes, he said Lou Reed could really sing in those days. Yeah, Bob, perhaps that's because it's not Lou Reed singing on that fucking, oh. fucking moron. And there's that song, Shoulder Pads, by The Fall, that goes, couldn't tell Lou Reed from Doug Yule. And I've never been able to hear that song since without thinking of fucking Geldof. <laughs> in his defense though the performance um he knows where the camera is at all times he, he you know he's one of the great emoters on top of the pops every time the camera changes he's there i think that's mm. his i think that's uh the, his training of being a children's tv presenter in canada yeah he's lo- looking for the red light yeah yeah what a yeah. wanker, though. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but to me, this was this was punk. I mean, it was it was seen in the in the tabloid newspapers as the first punk number one single. Uh, even though it clearly isn't punk, and you could argue that it isn't really much new wave either. Would you see them as a new wave band? Um, Called a new wave band. When what we have to sort of decide what new wave means exactly. Well, yeah, this, um, this is what we should have done but, at the but, top of the show, but never mind. But, we can um, do it now. But, but but new wave records, even if um, you know they're, they've shorn their kind of punk roots, as it were, and they're not as gnarly as old punk records. Mm. They're still, I don't know, they have a tightness and conciseness about them. Yeah. Um, that that Bintamats never had. Bintamats just seemed like a big sort of florid. Um, 
wank fest to a large extent. And mm. th- these songs are too fucking long. I cannot stress that enough. Yeah. Rat Trap w- might have been a diamond tight little two minute single, but it just goes on and on and on. I think it's four mm. minutes of long. Mm. And it's, you know, this is a common problem when bands are purely run by absolute egotists yeah. and no idea of conciseness. Yeah. And I think that's what's going on here. I wouldn't call them a, a new wave band, even though I'm sure that's, you know, where Spotify would put them, for instance, that, that you know, related artists would probably be bands like fucking Blondie. But the yeah. difference between Blondie and this is, is immense. Yeah. I think my definition at the age of 10 of what new wave was, was that if you went to, up to them and asked them for their autograph and they told you to fuck off, they'd be new wave. <laughs> Show what he wanted, they'd sign anything. Elvis Costello, fuck off. Dean Friedman, he'd come round your fucking house and play. Uh, Blondie, fuck off. I remember interviewing a really terrible band in the 90s in the Hilton Hotel by Hyde Park in London, and I was interviewing them, um, and over in the corner I spied, with my little eye, Debbie Harry, <gasps> eating, bre- eating breakfast with somebody. Um, and I could not let it pass, obviously, so I just no. abandoned the interview I was doing. Well done. And I went over to her and asked her for her autograph, um, you know, and she, like, had a fork going towards her mouth when I asked her. <laughs> oh. and, and, the I mean, the, the wonderful thing was she wasn't lovely, warm, um, and nice to me. Mm. She was so pissed off, yeah. and I wouldn't have it any other fucking yeah. way. She was really pissed off. She was a fucking empress. Yeah. And she, she deigned to give me her autograph. Not in a snotty way, but just no. in a kind of pissed off way. Yeah, but those, yeah. Um, those icy blue eyes boring through your soul. Oh, oh, <laughs> it was perfect. It could not have been any better. It, it, it was better that way than if she'd have, if we'd have had a chat or something. Excellent. It was absolutely the way I wanted my soul encounter with Debbie Harry to be. Oh, so, yeah, she, 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 she was fantastic. Oh, do you remember? You might probably don't. There's a band called Smash Mouth. Look, I did it oh, for yeah, money. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, as with most of the bands I interviewed, Daniel, it was for money purely. Uh, yeah, I you, feel... would, you would walk away from them for Debbie Harry, wouldn't you? Yeah, and I didn't even tell them. I just said, gotta go. They didn't even went. notice Debbie Harry. <laughs> no, they didn't. And I didn't want oh, them inveigling in. Hell. I didn't want them inveigling into this no. moment that pretty much I've been waiting for since I was, uh, I was Definitely, yeah. Um, but she was fantastically cold Excellent. And, and faintly disdainful. It was great. <laughs> so Rat Trap stayed for one more week at number one before being usurped by the next song we're going to hear. The follow-up, I Don't Like Mondays, would be number one for four weeks in the summer of 1979. Amazingly, Rat Trap only got to number two in Ireland, held off the top spot by Sandy by John Travolta and then hopelessly devoted to you by Olivia Newton-John. Hey, oh, yes. a lovely bit of revenge, <laughs> isn't it? But it would get to number one for three weeks in 1996 when it was re-recorded by Bob Geldof and Dustin the Turkey. Have you heard that version? <laughs> It's great. The turkey sings Geldof take a wash, take a wash, take a wash. <laughs> and points out and points out that his latest stuff is absolutely brutal. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they really are top of the pops this week. And that's all for this week. I hope you've enjoyed the program, and I hope you'll join us again next week. But for now, we leave you with the highest new entry in the chart. Rod Stewart, do you think I'm sexy? No.
London in 1945, Rod Stewart got his start in the pop game as the potential lead singer of the Kinks, but he eventually got knocked back and became the harmonica player for Jimmy Powell in the Five Dimensions. After a spell as a singer with Long John Baldry and the All-Stars in the mid-60s, the Steam Packet Collective and the Jeff Beck Group in the late 60s, Stewart spent the late 60s and early 70s juggling a solo career and being Steve Marriott's replacement in the former Small Faces, renamed Faces. By 1972, the solo records were outselling the Faces material and they parted ways in 1974 and he pissed off to Los Angeles in 1975. This is the follow-up to Ole Ola, Stewart's collaboration with the Scotland World Cup squad, which got to number four in June of this year. It's a veering off into disco territory for Rod and was co-written with Carmine a piece of Vanilla Fudge as well as a blatant nick of Taj Mahal by Jorge Ben and Put Something Down On It by Bobby Womack. And it's this week's highest new entry at number 14. It's actually da, you think I'm sexy. Is it? (laughs) must at least... Yeah, it's written... The title of this record is written da, you think I'm sexy, which must have been uncomfortable for Irish listeners. Yes! (laughs) (laughs) But I think this is a great record because it's simultaneously a joke and not a joke. Uh, Mm. Perfectly balanced. Uh, It's outlandish and a bit sort of grotesque. Um, Performed by this this bunch of bananas head goon (laughs) in in his pink leopard skin. uh, You're never quite sure uh, to what extent he's taking himself seriously. Like at this point, it could be anything from naught percent to a hundred percent you just can't tell um but also it's a very sweet story song about a real Mm. human connection yeah and um if you're going to do a disco rock track do it extremely professionally with uh, Mm. incredibly slick musicians and and do it like this and also i've got a soft spot for records that sound better the drunker you get (laughs) Um, this is definitely one of them it's as if they represent the opposite of all the things I don't like about myself you know and (laughs) as as the booze goes down it's like you you loosen up and you start to understand uh, you know what it should mean to be alive rather than what what it actually means yeah, and one of the—I mean, one of the keys to it, I would say, is not anything Rod does. It's that string part. It's that string motif. That that hook. Mm. That da 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 da. That bit is is, is yeah. an incredibly strong hook as well. Yeah. Which now, of course, would would have been a sample because it's yeah. from the Bobby Womack record, and yeah. now they just have sampled it um, and had to pay fifty percent of the publishing to. Mm. To Bobby mm. Womack, whereas in fact they just ripped it off yeah. and never had to pay any of it because yeah. apparently you can't sue for stealing a bit of the arrangement. Yeah. You can only sue for stealing a bit of the vocal melody. Uh, or mm. um, I think there's they will let you sue if it's like the main riff, like the you know, like uh, if you had the riff from Satisfaction or something yeah. like that. But you can just lift a string part and nobody cares. Hmm. A bit sneaky, really, isn't it? Yeah, it it is. It is. We'll say no more about this for now because it's bound to pop up again in future episodes. And let's let's just not shoot our bolt all over Rod and his leopard skin just yet. (laughs) So the following week, do you think I'm sexy? Sorry, duh, you think I'm sexy? Sold up to number four. And a week later, it was number one for one week until it was knocked off by Mary's boy child by Boney M. The follow-up, 
Ain't Love a Bitch got to number 11 in February mm. of 1979 and he'd have to wait five years to get to number one again with Baby Jane. All royalties from this record were donated to UNICEF and he eventually settled a lawsuit with Jorge Ben, but he still contends that it's all right to nick off Bobby Womack. <laughs> and it fucking isn't, let me tell you. No, but that chorus, that chorus vocal line, it, it's just exactly the same as yeah. that Taj Mahal, isn't it? It's just, yeah, it is. yeah. the first it, time you hear it, it's yeah. like, I can't it believe feels this. like someone's just having a laugh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and uh, it, apparently he said, oh, you know, I must have subliminally um, taken oh, it right. off when I was at the Rio <laughs> Carnival. When I was at the Carnival in Rio, uh, yeah, yeah, I must have, I must have heard it on a radio in a car going by. Yeah, I must have accidentally thought that this record that mostly only people in Brazil have heard. Um, yeah, you know. Was, <laughs> yeah. And that is the end of this episode of Top of the Pop. So, what is on television afterwards? Well, BBC One is now screening the episode of The Good Life where Margot gets shown up by her neighbours again, which means it could be any of the fuckers. And then World War Two, Lord Byron and the life of Admiral Horatio Hornblower are amongst the subjects in Mastermind. And then it's Miss World 1978, presented by Sassy Destell and Paul Burnett. Paul Burfuckin-Nett? <laughs> well, surely he Could've was been worse, doing the... Uh... Could have been a lot worse. Surely he was doing the uh, the and the, like the voiceover, you know, yes. and uh, coming up mm. here is number eighteen. And, yes, yeah. BBC Two is shown an investigation of South Africa in Newsweek, followed by the nineteen sixty three Paul Newman film Hood, and finishes off with Accident, a series of documentaries about how car crashes affect people's lives. On ITV, George has got a job as a traffic warden in Georgia Mildred. Jonathan Dimbleby interviews Indira Gandhi in TVI. Jack Reagan teams up with a Turkish police officer in a repeat of the Sweeney. And after news at 10, they finish off the night with the love boat. Oh, exciting and new. What are we talking <laughs> about in the playground tomorrow, chaps? Yeah, ripping I mean, up like, Travolta. It's got because, to be, hasn't it? Yeah, and it was. Yeah, and it was. But only because kids are stupid, you know. I mean, <laughs> let's face it. Oh, and also those men who spoke a song about toast and went in yeah, a kitchen. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. What are we buying on Saturday? I'm probably buying toast. Mm. And although I probably didn't at the time, uh, right now I'd buy Promises Like a Shot. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Blondie. Uh, oh, Blondie, yeah. Oh. Yeah, I'm not sure about anything. I mean, it's one thing to appreciate Dean Friedman. Yeah. It's quite another to go out and buy. <laughs> it's, it's a um, commitment, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Buzzcocks, I'd probably uh, have bought previous singles. I'd probably tape this one off the top 40 and uh, mm. in order to kill music and leave, <laughs> leave only a cassette-shaped yeah. skull. <laughs> So what does this episode tell us about November 1978? Actually, before I ask that question, where the fuck are Legs & Co? What's gone off there? Yeah. That's yeah, funny. well, they must have thought that Dean Friedman was enough sex for one night. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you've, got, you've, had the, you've had the largest lovely competition on Nationwide uh, beforehand. You've got Miss World afterwards. Maybe they thought too much satisfaction. Yeah, be all tapped Maybe out so. by, by so, yeah. Taylor. You, you and I had a we, we kind of tried to look into this, didn't we, before the show, and we worked out that there's a possibility that they assumed that 
one of the three Greece records that was clogging up the top five uh, would would be number one because Sandy, I think Sandy was number two, and uh, hopelessly devoted to you was number three. Uh, so yeah. so and they'd already done dance routines for that. And we we did we did we take a look at the dance routine that Lexico did for hopelessly devoted for you? No, you've seen it, Taylor. Two words, um, two words, Taylor. You and tree. <laughs> yes. Very much so. Very, Very much so. yes. Yeah, it's... <laughs> uh, it's <laughs> and that's all I'm going to say. You've got YouTube, you've yeah. got fingers. Yeah. But what does this episode tell us about November 1978? Mm. It, it's still very, very much the 70s. Mm. It, it, there's not a hint of the future, I would say. There's no... there's. The, Maybe there, there there is, but I can't hear any. Do you know what I mean? Electronics in this episode. No, there's no hint that I feel love has come out the year before, or that I don't know. Man Machine is coming out this year. I'm not saying these things are going to gate crash the charts necessarily, but it's it's a very it's a 70s episode with not a hint of the bands who were perhaps about to break forth mm. the following year. So we're still kind of tail end of punk, I guess, mm. but nothing else new has started, I suppose. Yeah, and I was dis- I was disappointed. Yeah, there was a seventy eight is a disco year, really. It's you is. know, it's kind of it's almost like disco peaking, cresting almost. Um, and there's barely any of it apart from the 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 uh, Pointer Sisters thing at the beginning. Um, three, three degrees, degrees. three degrees, bloody hell, man. Sorry. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's kind been of a long one. Yeah, it's kind of bookended by disco, isn't it? I was I was quite surprised by that. But I, do you think people were assuming that oh, Saturday Night Fever's gone down the pan, so disco's dead? Perhaps so. Mm. Perhaps so. But I mean, you know, could this episode have happened apart from Blondie and the Buzzcocks? Mm. I'd say these records could have existed at any point in the previous few years. Really, there's nothing sort of. Um, there's nothing specifically of this time. You know, the, from 75 onwards, a lot of the Top of Pops episodes, I'm not saying they become much of a muchness, mm. but there's a lot of interchangeability in them. Yeah. And, I, and I, I think this is one of them. There's not that kind of thing that you start detecting towards the end of 79 where you just feel, shit, things are changing. Mm. Yeah, musically, it's we're still on the mainland 70s, definitely. Mm. I think visually the leaves are turning, though. Um, there's... Uh, you can see mm. like that it's very much late 78 when you look at early 78 um yeah nothing's really changed but by late 78 it's long faces badly fitting clothes perpetual drizzle confusion and unrest uh, freewheeling towards thatcher um and definitely when you look at this episode that comes across <laughs> mm. I've got to say that I fucking love this episode. Uh, it was like Good, yeah. it was the equivalent of finding your all your Sabutio stuff in your mum's attic and just dusting it off and going, "Oh my god, I can't! Mm. I, I've forgotten all about this. I've forgotten all about that." Um, <laughs> it, it definitely jump up and down music all the way through. Um, yeah, you could say "Child" were um, a, a load of shit, but. They're the kind of exception that proves the rule, I think, in this. You know, I think you need a bit of that to, to, to remind yourself how bad things were. Um, I think the only thing that was missing was if Legs & Co were dressed up as bread knives and slices of bread and pots of jam and, and butter and did <laughs> toast, that would have been that would have made it probably the best Top of the Pops ever. But no, I was totally <laughs> happy with this. It was, oh, 78. 
Love that shit. It contains all of the great things about Top of the Pops. Yes. From this era, I'd say. And, and it contains no. the thing of, of the Buzzcocks being on Top of the Pops. You know, being in millions of people's living rooms. People who look like that. I'm not saying they look terrible, but what I mean is people who look like that yeah. in our living rooms. So I think that's amazing. And of course, there's just the heart-jacking mm. excitement of the Blondie moment. That, that's just a three-minute total thrill just delivered like a little pipe it's bomb from your letterbox on a Thursday evening. It's just wonderful. So, yeah, it contains a lot of what is great about Top of the Pops, I think. And uh, as if that wasn't enough, you also get Kid Jensen saying the title of Fat Bottom Girls and then doing a Kenneth <laughs> Williams face. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, I quite, I quite like the moment when, you know, you know, before Rod Stewart, when he goes, do you think I'm sexy? And those girls are standing around him. And yeah. they go, no. I actually quite liked that. It was slightly unmannered. It wasn't as forced as some of these things have been um, with, with some of the other DJs. I found that quite amusing. It's quite a sweet um, Anticipating the cover by British Standard Unit, uh, which <laughs> ends in precisely that fashion. All um, right. The, the the thing that unnerved me a bit about that was the tiny little Valerie Solanus type um, <laughs> who was standing just to Kid Jensen's left. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah keep an eye on her. <laughs> well, my ducks, that is the end of chart music for this episode. All that remains for me to do now is to try and remember what fucking URLs and all that shit I've got to throw at you. So off the top of my head... The website, www.chart-music.co.uk. You can get involved with us on Facebook, uh, www.facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast. And you can join the many people who follow us on Twitter. Not that many, but, you know, enough. More than (laughs) enough. You won't want them all in your ass at the same time. Put it that way. Um, Chart Music, T-O-T-P. Thank you very much, Taylor uh, Taylor Pike. (laughs) <laughs> don't, don't, don't tailor him pike thank you very much taylor my pods. name will also go on the list sorry say that again <laughs> thank you very much taylor parks no problem thank you very much neil Carne. no worries al this has been chart music my name's al needham and i am the demon prince of the third division <laughs> chart music So may I beg the indulgence of the experts and ask you to bear with us while we try to give a little bit of help to those who are more agitato about what's happening. Next week, as part of the general frequency changes, Radio 3 will be moving on medium wave from 464 metres to 247 metres. Our VHF position remains unchanged. Now, if you're listening to us now on medium wave and you want to discover where we're going to be, I hope these next five minutes will help. You should by now have one of the little cards with stickers on. You can peel off one of those marked with a three and be prepared to stick it on your dial at the point where Radio 3 will be after the 23rd. Now, your set may be marked in metres or it may be marked in kilohertz. Metres measure wavelengths and kilohertz are the measurement of frequency. Look carefully at where you're tuned now on medium wave. If your set is one marked in metres, it'll be just over halfway between 400 and 500 metres. We're actually on 464 metres, so that's just over halfway between 4 and 500. Now, you'll need to tune down past 400, past 300, to just over halfway to 200. 
The new wavelength is 247 meters. Now, in a moment or two, we'll let you hear what's going on there on Radio 1, so you can hear what to tune to. Now, your set may instead be marked in kilohertz. In that case, at the moment, we're on 647 kilohertz, about halfway between 6 and 700. See it? Now, perversely, kilohertz moves in the opposite direction to wavelength, so your, our new home will, if your set is marked in kilohertz, mean tuning up the scale. The new kilohertz number is 1215. It's the date of Magna Carta. You can't possibly forget that. So if everybody's happy, on 247 metres and 1215 kilohertz at the moment, this is what's going on. I've been sitting with my Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 